It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to continue our salute to Women's History Month tonight with a spotlight on women writers, a Kathleen Height story about an ace reporter on Night Beat, and two stories by the redoubtable Lucille Fletcher, a satire on the Columbia Workshop, and a virtuosic production of one of the greatest of all radio thrillers, The Hitchhiker, performed by Orson Welles, Bernard Herrmann, and the Mercury Summer Theater. Plus, a massive mistake on Gunsmoke, body shaming on Dragnet, and a radio program designed for women, the soap opera Joyce Jordan, M.D. So relax, give up any worries that beset you last week, it's over, and postpone any concerns about the week that starts tomorrow. It's time to liberate your imagination here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. The last 12 months have been a stress test for all of us but especially for people in senior living facilities. As it happens, such places provide the setting for The Paradise Lost Matter, a story from August 14, 1960, CBS, AFRTS, and the series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Al Turner, Johnny, over here at New Britain Mutual. Al, it's been a long time. Yeah, I know. What can I do for you? Plenty, I hope. Uh, How, uh... How old are you, Johnny? Well, next birthday I'll be 30... Huh? 30 what? Now, why? Well, it really doesn't make too much difference. You see, Johnny, I think it's time you entered a home for the agent. I what? And if you think I'm kidding, I'm not. Okay, Al, what's the gag? I told you, I want you over at the Mackley Rest Home. Where's that? Frog Mountain, New York. Where's that? Down along the Hudson River above Poughkeepsie near Kingston. But, uh, just to pay him a little visit, not to stay. That's right. What goes down there? Sudden death, Johnny. Deaths. Oh? Four of them in a row, three of them insured by us. Well, after all, if they're old folks... That's the beneficiary of all that insurance. Yeah? The sole beneficiary of all the insurance on them just happens to be the Mackley Rest Home. Oh. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll, uh, kind of drop in on CBS Radio brings you Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the New Britain Mutual Insurance Company, Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Paradise Lost matter. I decided my own car would be handy to have along. As usual, the gauge said nearly empty. So, expense account item one is five twenty for a tank full of gas. I drove west on forty four, then cut across to Rhinebeck, then Rhinecliff, where I took the ferry over the Hudson to the town of Kingston, New York. On Route twenty eight, I passed through Stony Hollow. And a few miles further on, I found a sign indicating Frog Mountain. It was on a side road to the left. At one side of it overlooked the famous Ashokan Reservoir. 
And I, uh, well, some pretty big fish have come out of that water. Thinking about it, I almost drove on past what was obviously a rest home for the agent in among the trees. There was a large, very old frame house set on the side of the mountain. And sitting about on the front lawn, reading, chatting, playing cards, or just enjoying the afternoon sun were the happy-looking customers. As I stopped the car, a pleasant-looking middle-aged man walked over to me, smiled, and said... How do you do, young man? How do you do? Oh, honey, do. My name is Johnny Dollar. A pleasure to meet you, Mr. Dollar. I'm Justin Pe- uh, Perry. You have some elderly relative, perhaps, very dear to you, for whom you'd like to provide a quiet, comfortable retirement home. Well, uh, no. Oh, Perry, did you say? Justin Perry. I'm the owner of Paradise. Paradise? A really appropriate name for our lovely place, don't you agree? Well, I... Uh, Just yes. look at the happy faces of our guests and you can... But then you say you don't wish to send someone to us. Well, now, wait, uh... This isn't the Mackley Rest Home? Oh, no, no, Mr. Dollar. This is Paradise. The Mackley Place is further up the road. Oh, 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 I see, I see. Well, thanks very much. Dollar, did you say? Yes, that's right. Edward? Edward? Yes, Dad? Would you like to show Mr. Dollar the way to the Mackley Place? Sure, Dad. Anything you say. Then go ahead. Well, if it's just up the road. About a mile or so. Oh, then I'm sure I'll be able to find it all right. Whatever you say, Mr. Dollar. Sure. Thanks a lot. A very nice spot. And some of the folks on the lawn waved cheerily as I drove on back up the road toward the mountain. I wondered if the Mackley place would be the same. It wasn't. At least, well, it was brand new. A modern ranch type of thing built on a single level. A lot of native stone and glass. All very pretty and smart and practical, but lacking in warmth. The guests, the residents, though well-dressed and apparently wealthy, were sitting by themselves for the most part. Reading or just, just sitting. No one seemed to notice me as I parked my car, then walked in through the door at one side, marked off. Yes. Something I can do for you? Mr. Mackley? Yes, that's right. Peter Mackley. And uh, who are you? My name is Johnny Dollar. Oh, yes, yes. The insurance investigator. How are you? I am. Uh, Al Turner, the insurance company, said you'd be coming along. Uh, Won't you sit down? Oh, he did? Yes. Just to be honest about it, I, I don't see why, though. You don't, huh? Well, now, what do you mean by that, Mr. Dollar? Well, it's quite a layout you have here, Mr. Mackley. Must have sent you back a lot of money. Well, that's no secret. But I suppose it's all bought and paid for. Oh, far from it, Mr. Dollar. It'll be some years before we get our heads above water. Even with the help of two or three nice, fat insurance legacies? Now, look here, Dollar. Well? If you're referring to the fact that some people happen to die and just... Happened to leave some insurance to us. Just happened to, huh? Now, what's that mean? Just exactly what you think it does, Mackley. Are you trying to imply that I or anybody if else... If the shoe is... fits where... Now, if you're saying that you suspect we might have murdered those old Did people... I say that? Well, that's what you meant, isn't it? You've no right coming here accusing me of something like that. Now, look, you... And what's more, you're not the police and you have no authority around here. So just go on, get out of here. Sorry, but I'm not leaving this place until I find out something more about how those people died. Dollar, you're going to be sorry for this. Is that a threat? You take it any way you like. Well, it may sound a bit corny, Mackley. Now just get out of Just remember here. that anything you say now might be used against you. Why, you arrogant And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Paradise Lost Matter. All right. All right, Mr. Dollar, I... 
I freely admit it was too bad four of the old people died here within a month and a half. It's most pathetic, most unexpected. What's more important to me is that it gives our place a black eye. Unexpected by whom, Mr. By everyone. Including the doctor who comes up here from Kingston to attend him, and who is always on call in case of emergency. Uh Uh-huh. Who is this doctor? He's Dr. Nathan Way. He's from over in Kingston. Just how did these four people die? Well, according to their death certificates, the first one was an accident. Old Mr. Bartley slipped and fell off the corner of the porch one night while he was walking in his sleep. Slipped or was pushed? Now, look here, Dollar. Okay, okay. What about the other three? They were natural causes. That is, they... Well, their hearts gave out. According to the death certificates. That's right. But what really happened? Poison, perhaps? Something like that? Dollar. Dollar, you don't know what you're talking about. We'll see, Mr. McAfee. Now, where will I find this Dr. Way? Uh, someone mentioned my name? Oh, hello, Doctor. Hello, Peter. Doctor, this is Johnny Dollar. He's oh. an investigator from the insurance company. How do you do, Mr. Dollar? Doctor. Dollar seems to have the absurd, the fantastic idea that the recent deaths here were deliberate. What? Yes. What? Yes, in order that we could benefit from the insurance, those, those fine old people were kind enough to leave us. Well, now, that is rather absurd, Mr. Dollar. Is it, Doctor? This place is up to its neck in debt. I told you that, Dollar. But isn't that to be expected when you consider the cost of building a fine new establishment like this? All right. After all, it's less than two years old. And what did you do before this, Mackley? In some business where you could go around making contacts that would assure you plenty of wealthy, gullible customers for this racket? Dollar. Well? Dollar. My wife and I have been in this business of taking care of old people ever since my parents died. That's over 15 years ago. Yeah, where? In Pennsylvania. I can check on that, you know. I know that, I know that. Why did you pack up and come here to New York? Tell him, Peter. Well, well, for one thing, the air. The climate is much better here than it was in the coal region. Yes. And? Tell him, Peter. Well, we had to close down over there. Why? Because our building, our... Our facilities were considered substandard, according to some new regulations. And suddenly, a lot of your patients started dying off? No! No, now that... Nothing of the sort. Peter is telling you the truth, Mr. Dollar. You investigated, Dr. Way? Well, no, not exactly. I see. But I have talked with many of these fine old people who move from there to here, and they are intelligent, wealthy people. Wealthy? Yes, yeah, I'll bet they are. Dollar, will you listen to me? And it was so easy to talk a lot of them into buying a hunk of insurance and making this place the beneficiary. Now, that's not true. Isn't it? Then how come three of the four no, people who no, suddenly died around here... No, it true, Mr. Dollar. It was I who suggested to them, unknown to Peter, that they leave something to this rest home. You? And they thanked me and wondered why they hadn't thought of it before. How many of your people are planning to leave you money, Mackley? I don't know, Dollar. I don't know if any of them are, and what's more, I don't care. My wife and I knew the financial responsibility we were taking on in the beginning. And unless we lose our reputation, our clientele, through more of these unfortunate deaths... Oh, sure, they're bad for business, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are. Exactly, Mr. But as long as the insurance money keeps... Dollar, will you stop it? No. Now, Dr. Way... Uh, Mr. Dollar, I'm afraid these accusations... Tell me this, Doctor. You issued the death certificates, huh? I did. All of you mean autopsies on them all, huh? Well, good heavens, no. Why not? Uh, the accident in case of Mr. Bartley was all too obviously an accident. Was it? As for the others, 
Well, after all, they were well along in years. Ah, so you gave them a quick once-over, scribble down natural causes and let it go at that. And that's why I want those bodies exhumed and autopsies performed. Mr. Dahl... First, though, I'm checking up on you. Well, by all means, do. I want you to. Oh, I will. Meantime, if you like, I'll drive back to Kingston and arrange for the bodies to be made available. Yeah, you do that. I followed the doctor into Kingston, parked my stuff at a hotel, and dropped in at police headquarters where I talked with Lieutenant Art Connolly. A dollar, I'm glad you're looking into this. Frog Mountain's a bit out of our jurisdiction, officially, that is. But I've wondered about those deaths myself. Well, how much do you know about Peter Mackley, Lieutenant? Well, I've thought a lot of that man ever since he came to these parts. Oh? Yeah, he's not the kind you might expect to be running an old folks' home, but, well, he's okay. I see. How well do you know Dr. Way? Well, one of the finest people we have here in Kingston. And without a doubt, the best man to make those autopsies you want. He's connected with the department? Yeah. And if you ask me, he'll get you results so fast it'll... Oh, now, wait a minute, Dollar. You're not thinking that Dr. Way... Mackley. Mackley, huh? And I'll tell you this about Pete Mackley, Dollar. It took a lot of guts for him to go that place of his. What do you mean by that? I mean against some of the folks around town who were partial to Justin Perry who runs the Paradise Home, who, who were afraid it might put him out of business. Mackley's place being so much nicer and modern and all. That still doesn't mean anything, Lieutenant. And you know, those old folks like things new and modern. And if Perry doesn't improve that place of his... Oh, uh, yeah? Oh, hello, Doc. Lieutenant, Mr. Dollar, I'll be able to make those autopsies tonight. When I'm finished, I'll uh, call you at your hotel. Sure, Doctor. You do that. I talked further with the lieutenant, but I'm afraid I didn't get much help from him. He was convinced, a little too convinced, that Peter Mackley was all right, and he spent all his time defending him. A late dinner at the hotel was item two, four twenty-five. Item three was thirty-five cents for a magazine. I went up to my room, sprawled out in a big overstuffed chair, put my feet on the windowsill, and promptly went to sleep. Yeah, the combination of a big dinner and the quiet night had really got to me. Too much for my own good. He must have used a calling card to slip the lock on the door, because the first thing I remember was hearing the door close. And when the light switch went off... Huh? Who's that? What's the idea of turning off the... Oh, no, you... And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Another piece of tape to hold this bandage on your head. You'll be... Doctor. Yeah. There you are. No. That's Back right. Away. Now, don't tell me you fell asleep and fell out of your chair and did this. Oh, no, no. Listen, oh, listen. and here, here. Perhaps a drop of this uh, medicinal brandy? No, no. no. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Oh, oh. Hey... Hey, look, it's morning. Yes, and I've done the autopsies. Oh? I knocked on your door and didn't get any answer. Doc. But it wasn't locked, so I came on in and, uh, what happened? Oh, somebody sneaked in and slugged me. Who? Are you kidding? 
But come on, what about the autopsy? Yes, yes. Well, no question about it. Uh, Mr. Bartley's death was an accident. But the others? Poison. A poison that made it look like heart failure. Okay, then. Hello. Hello. Your order, please? Lieutenant Art Conley at police headquarters. I'll call you right back, sir. Emergency, operator. This is a... Okay, okay. Now, Mr. Dollar. The doctor, somebody at Mackley's rest home gave them poison, so that's it. But the only medicines those people get are the ones that I myself prescribe. And I have never prescribed even the most minute dose of sodium therapy. Lieutenant Johnny Dollar. Well, I'm glad you called, Dollar. Doc told me the result of his autopsy is on his way over to see you. Then you know. But I still refuse to believe that Peter Mackley... No. Then why did he come here and try to put me out of the picture? He... What? I don't know what scared him off before he could finish the job, but I'm thankful something did. When? Last night I was asleep. Oh, well, then you're wrong. It wasn't Peter Mackley. No? Knowing that sometimes you have to suspect even your best friend on a case like this, I had Mackley here at headquarters all night. So, Dollar... Doctor... My prescriptions? Yes. I've been thinking about that. They're always made up at Pearson's drugstore by Mrs. Pearson herself. Then she is going to have some visitors. What? Come along, Doc. This is Johnny Dollar, special investigator. Oh, how exciting. Mrs. Pearson, I want to know if you stock a drug called sodium thera... What do you call it, Doctor? I didn't, but it's sodium thera melicillate. Oh. But I doubt very much. Yes, I it... do. You do? Old Dr. Morley, the veterinarian, used it now and then to take oh. care of hopeless animal cases. And you have it here now? Yes. One of these back shells, I have a single bottle that I... Hey, wait. Wait a minute. Yes? On that motorcycle out there with a the sidecar. He pulled away from the back of this place. Yes. He helps in the store and makes all the deliveries for me. And he must have seen us in here. Must have seen me. What? He makes all the deliveries, including prescriptions for the Mackley Rest Home? That's right. Doc. He's taking some of Dr. Way's prescriptions up there now. Good. No, no, listen. Now, let me find that bottle of... Doc, sodium. doctor, listen. That may be the answer. That he's the delivery boy for Mrs. Pearson? Yes. Well, I'm afraid I Dr. don't... Dr. Way, look here. No, no, Doc, we've got to go after that kid. Here's the bottle, Doctor. Uh, but I don't understand. Doctor, will you listen to me? So many of them are missing. Unless we could... What was that, Mrs. Pearson? Well, a lot of these sodium theramalicillate tablets are missing. Then that's the answer, Doc. He's the answer. Come on. tried to chase a motorcycle up a tortuous, treacherous mountain road? Well, I did. We did. And the sidecar was the only thing that kept him from running away from us. And the fact that he kept looking back, knowing we were chasing him. Oh, he'll kill him, sir. Looking back at us. That was his big mistake. He'll never make that turn. That was young Edward Perry's fatal mistake. Edward. He's still alive, Doc. Here. 
Here, I'll see what I can do for him. No, no, Ed. Now, let's, let's see. You know, take it easy here. No. No use, Doc. <laughs> well, we can try now. We can try. But but why, Eddie? I saw you there in the store. I saw Dollar there. No, I just took it easy. Knew you'd got wise that I was ill. I was putting that poison in Doc's prescription. Give him something to knock him out, Doctor. I'm afraid there's no use. I'm afraid. But it was Dad who... Justin Perry. Dad made me. Said if enough, enough people at Mackley's died off, they'd... Now, easy, easy, lad, easy. They'd leave Mackley's, come to Dad's place. Eddie, why? To the paradise. We'd put... We'd put Mackley out of business. Barry's arm, Dollar. Right, Doc. Uh, what? Put Mackley... Uh, oh, so, so long, Doc. Doctor, it's all over. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what the courts will do. Ask me, Justin Perry murdered his son as much as though he'd done it with his own two... Uh, I don't know. Expense account total, call it 50 bucks. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Truly Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Harry Bartell, Edgar Barrier, Sam Edwards, Stacey Harris, Junius Matthews, and Forrest Lewis. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is John Wall speaking. Johnny Dollar has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and The Paradise Lost Matter from Midsummer 1960 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tax time is upon us, and if you think you've got problems, believe me, they're nothing compared to those of Archie the manager of Duffy's Tavern. Turns out those IRS forms were just as complicated 75 years ago as they are today, Somehow, I don't find that encouraging. He gets help, I guess you'd call it, from his guest star, the unique radio comedian F. Chase Taylor, in his role as Colonel Lemuel Q. Stoopnagel, the master of the spoonerism. Also on hand is Charlie Cantor as the doofus Finnegan, Florence Hallop in her final appearance as Miss Duffy, and, as usual, the only one with any sense, Eddie Green as Eddie the Waiter. You'll hear jokes about the Secretary of the Treasury at that time, Henry Morgenthau, the radio program, We the People, and the furrier, I.J. Fox. It was a time when there were only 48 United States, and when there were penny scales that gave you your fortune along with your weight. 
from the NBC Blue Network on March 7th in the wartime year of 1944. It's Ed Gardner as Archie the manager of Duffy's Tavern. In cooperation with the Armed Forces Radio Service, the following broadcast is one of the radio programs selected to be shortwave to our Armed Forces overseas. Bristol-Myers, the makers of Sal Hepatic, a famous laxative, and Minute Rub, modern chest rub, bring you Duffy's Tavern. Where do you late mate date? Archie the manager speaking. Duffy ain't here. Hello, Duffy. Uh, tonight, uh, Colonel Stopenagel. Oh, I wouldn't say that, Duffy. Uh, oh, he's lost weight. Uh, I would, uh, I would describe him more as a big thin slob. Huh? Crazy? No, he ain't really crazy. I'd uh, uh, describe him more as a wealthy eccentric uh, with no dough. <clears throat> Yeah. His inventions? Uh, well, uh, Duffy, he's invented some very good ones. Well, that uh, bathroom door that you don't have to wait outside of. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it opens into a closet. Uh, yeah, and them, uh, them uh, round dice he has. Round dice, you know, for uh, people who would rather play marbles. Uh, another thing. Hey, Duffy, what's that noise? Mrs. Duffy slugging you with a frying pan because you won't buy her a mink coat? Duffy, you better leave a slug you. A mink could probably set you back about 150 bucks. Oh, certainly. Even more expensive than rabbit. Well, uh, that's, I uh, guess, on account of there's uh, more rabbits than minks. Why is that? Uh, well, uh, maybe it's because the rabbit is a fl- friendlier animal. <laughs> Well, look, Duffy, I'm busy. Uh, fight it out yourself. I got to go figure my income tax. I'll call you back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Duffy's Tavern. Come in and meet Finnegan, Eddie the Waiter, Ben Avenuta, Peter Van Steeden and his orchestra, our special guest tonight, Colonel Lemuel Q. Stoopnagel, and Archie himself, Ed Gardner. Brought to you by two products that will pay you to remember. Minute Rub when you have a cold, Sal Hepatica when you need a laxative. Minute Rub, Sal Hepatica. Now, let's see. I got to figure these taxes. Now, my yearly salary, uh, that's annuities, uh, that's uh, $15 a week, and there's 48 weeks in a year. Uh, Mr. Archer, there's 52 weeks in a year. You're thinking of states. Uh, uh, 52 weeks there's, uh, there's 12 months in a year, right? Right And there's 4 weeks in a month, right? Right Well, you multiply 4 by 12 and you get You're right, it is 52 <laughs> yeah. yeah, holy cow, 52 weeks uh, Except leap year, of course Then it's uh, 53 weeks Oh, naturally Now, let's see Uh, <laughs> uh 15, uh, 15, you times it uh, by 52, that's uh, 630, uh, shove over to Zypher, uh, that's, uh, that uh, makes the fiduciary, uh, look, let me look at that tax blank a minute, Eddie, let's see here, it says, uh, see footnote one, 
Footnote one, see schedule B. Schedule B, see footnote two. Footnote two, see footnote one. Footnote one. <clears throat> if you claim a credit in line 15, disregard line 19A, complete schedule L1, page four, instructions, and enter computation in line 19C. I'll ignore that. <laughs> Uh, must be a typographical error. Uh, now, if I add Schedule 1 to the 15... Uh, by the way, do you want me to help you with your taxes? No, thanks. No, sir. I don't want to bother you. See. You, you got enough work making out your own tax wrong. Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, look, Eddie. Uh, you know, I may seem confused internally, but inside, my brain is going clickety-clack, clickety-clack. Like a broiler factory. Yeah, I'll have you know that when I was at uh, PS4, at PS4, I was the mathematical genius of the school. Yeah. Well, if you stay any place long enough, you're bound to get to the top. Hmm. Right. You should have seen me in them days, Eddie. Me knowledge of mathematics was positively gruesome. Yeah, I mastered them all. Arithmetic, uh, geometry, adding... Uh, plain geometry, fancy geometry, uh, <clears throat> trigonometry, uh, calcium, <laughs> and, uh, Albert, Albert, uh, uh, square rope and the cube rope and the round rope <clears throat> and the entire multiplication table up to and including nine times nine. Up to and including nine times nine, huh? Yeah. Uh, how much is nine times nine? Uh, uh, now that I think of it, I guess it was just up to, not including. <laughs> well, uh, look, uh, let us, uh, get back to this blank. Uh, hello, I just... Uh, what are you doing? Uh, me income tax, Finnegan. Uh, did you do yours? Oh, heavens to betcha, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank goodness mine is all completely... Oh, it is completely, huh? Who uh, filled it out for you? Don't know, buddy. I went down to the post office, I waited in line, and uh, finally decided to fill it out for me shop. Well, how much was your tax? Uh, $600. Uh, Finnegan, how could you figure it to come out $600? Well, I, just, I hate to admit this, uh, but I cheated. Oh, you cheated, huh? How? I copied from the guy in front of me. <laughs> $600, that's crazy. Uh, you think the government should pay me more? <laughs> the government don't pay you, you pay the government. Is that so? Then why is it so popular? What do you mean? So you should have seen that line at the post office. <laughs> Look, Finnegan, you got to fill out a return. Uh, Tell you what, I'll help you. We'll do it together. After all, you know, uh, one head is better than uh, none. Thanks, uh, 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 Yeah, I demand a recount. Now, look, Finnegan, what was your income last year? Uh, nothing. Uh, nothing, huh? Uh, any dependents? Uh, yeah, me father. He gives me a dollar a week spending money. Dollar a week from your father, yeah. huh? I wonder how we could charge that off. Too bad your father ain't dead. Uh, we could uh, call it an inheritance. Well, that's the break, Sean. Uh, 
<laughs> well, let's see now. Uh, how about medicinal expenses? Uh, oh, none of those. Uh, uh, dentifrice? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I got my father teeth for Christmas. Oh, you got him teeth. How much uh, did you pay for the teeth? Nothing. I found them. Uh, well, look, uh, all I can do that with the, uh, with the front teeth? Yeah. And you can't deduct them. You know? Your father would look horrible. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, how much could I deduct? Well, let's see now. Uh, your income is zero. Uh, uh, your deductions is zero. Uh, 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 tax to be paid, uh, zero. You mean I make zero so I got to pay zero? Yeah. Uh, it's a crime. It's making a guy pay 100% of his income. <laughs> Put you in the upper brackets. Excuse me. <clears throat> Hello? Hello, Duffy. She's still slugging you with a frying pan? Oh, oh now it's with the lamp, huh? What happened to the frying pan? They don't make them like they used to, huh? Well, uh, look, Duffy, why don't you buy it a mink coat? You can't afford it because you got to pay your income tax. Look, with a fat wife like that, you could put a picture on a blank and claim her as four dependents. Huh? You, uh, you absolutely refuse to buy it. Uh, did she hear you? Hello? Hello? Oh. <laughs> Goodbye, Mrs. Duffy. <laughs> Hello? Hello, Duffy. What? She left you? Oh, where did she go? Well, what did the note say? I've gone home to my mother. Goodbye forever, you thick-headed cheapskate. Signed, your loving wife. <laughs> uh, oh, Duffy, don't start crying. Oh, Duff, Duffy, don't. Come on. Chin up, old man. <laughs> Duffy, please. Benny, come here, talk to him, cheer him up. Mrs. Duffy has left him, and the guy's really miserable. Oh, certainly. Hello, Mr. Duffy. This is Benet Venuta. Oh, I'm sorry to hear about it. Uh, what? No, I'm busy tonight, you old goat. That Duffy. Go ahead and sing, Benet. That guy with the memory of a frying pan still warm on his brain. Trying to make a date with another pan. Blue, got 
the mean St. Louis blues. That man's got a heart like a rock cast in the sea. Or else he wouldn't have gone so far from me. Red-headed woman makes a good man leave this town. I said a red-headed woman makes a good man leave this town. But a bland-headed woman makes a fella slap his pappy dog. Oh, I love that man like a schoolboy loved his Now, Miss Archie, how you doing with the income tax? Uh, oh, yeah, I've got to get back to that now. Let's see now. Uh, let's look at this blank now. Here, uh, I put down a tax that I know that i got to pay. See, that's the uh, short tax. <laughs> Wait a minute now. You say that, that's a short tax? Yeah, uh, short tax. S-U-R-T-A-X. Oh, I see. And then uh, to that, you add the short plus. The what? The shore plus. Are you kidding? The word is surplus. <laughs> Anyways, you add the surplus to the shore tax, and uh, then you... Pardon me, may I use your telephone? Oh, just the guy to help me with the taxes, Colonel Stoopnagel. <laughs> I certainly can use the phone. Here's the phone, Colonel. Ah, thank you. I'm in an awful rush. Uh-huh. Hello, information. I'd like the phone number of Duffy's Tavern. But, Colonel, this is Duffy's Tavern. Oh, really? What's the phone number? Orchard 29970. Thank you. Hello, information. That number is Orchard 29970. You're welcome. In their future, please look it up in your own directory. This guy's a maniac. Well, well, so this is, uh... What's the name of this place again? Zimmerman's Little Hungary. <laughs> Ain't you a little bit punchy? Well, uh, yes, I think so, too. But most people agree with me. Huh. And not only that, I'm also absent-minded. Oh, you're absent-minded. How did you get that way? Well, you see, as a child, I was very cruel to animals. And one day, I deliberately kicked a horse in the foot with my head. <laughs> well, well, so this is Duffy's Tavern. Yeah, yeah, this is Duffy's Tavern. And how is Mr. Duffy? Oh, okay. And Mr. Tavern? <laughs> There is no Mr. Tavern. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, we've all got to go sometime. <laughs> but Mr. Duffy is carrying on, huh? Oh, he certainly is carrying on. His, uh, his wife just left him. Oh, really? I hope they'll be very happy together. <laughs> Incidentally, Archie, speaking of marriage, I have a new invention for newlyweds. No invention for newlyweds? What is it? It's an overhead threshold so that if you marry a heavy woman, you can carry her under it. Oh. What do you think of it? Well, I don't know. To me, it sounds crazy, but, but I think it is. 
Archie, I'm glad to see that you have visions. Colonel Stoopnagel, I believe. Oh, uh, Colonel, a uh, man just uh, stepped out of the audience here, Clifton Finnegan. Uh, <coughs> Finnegan, Finnegan. Uh, were you ever awake by James Joyce? <laughs> no, no, I have an alarm clock. Uh, Colonel, you confused the guy. Uh, the correct grammar is Finnegan's woke. Uh, <coughs> say it's a verb, not a tense. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Finnegan, may I say that you are a very intelligent-looking man? Oh, thanks, Kyle. Yes, I'm sure that if you had a forehead, it would be a very high one. <laughs> oh, the, no, Colonel. The, I would rather have a head like yours coming up to a point. Yours comes to a point, too. Yeah, but yours comes to a higher point. Ah, uh, no, yours comes to a higher point. What is this, way to staple? <laughs> Look, uh, Colonel, uh, I got me income tax to fill out. Income tax? Well, that's right down my uppies. <laughs> Archie, would you like to reduce your taxes? Reduce me taxes? Certainly. Then here, take a look at my latest invention. Your invention? Uh, what, what, what do you call it? The Tactual Q Reducer Nagel. The greatest little machine I ever invented. Cut your taxes 80%. Hmm, uh, look, Colonel, uh, not that I doubt your insanity, but, uh, how can a little machine like that reduce your taxes? You doubt me? Let me read you some testimonials. Listen to this one. Mr. Henry Morgenthau, dear sir, since the invention of the reducer nagel, many people have reduced their taxes by 80%. Signed, Colonel Stoopnagel. <laughs> Let me see that. Hey, you're right. It's addressed to Morgenthau, all right. Yes, Archie, and not only that, the reducer Nagel carries a written guarantee. Written guarantee, huh? Yep, here it is. I, Colonel Stoopnagel, hereby guarantee that if my invention does not reduce your income tax by 80%, sign Colonel Stoopnagel. <laughs> Guy couldn't ask for no more than that, could he? Uh, excuse me. Hello? Hello, Duffy. She didn't come back, huh? You're lonesome. Well, sure. Damn, that weighs 350 pounds. Must leave quite a gap in a guy's life. <laughs> hey, hey, wait a minute, Duffy. I got an idea. Colonel Stoopnagel invented a machine that'll knock 80% off your taxes. Huh? Well, so what? All great inventors is nuts. Take Robert Fulton. <laughs> sure, they call him Bugs. That other guy that invented gravity. <laughs> sure, they call him Figs Newton. <laughs> And, uh, look, Duffy, with the, uh, 80% that this machine saves you, you can go out and buy Mrs. Duffy a mink coat and anything else a big, fat heart desires. <laughs> huh? You'll go right out to I.J. Fox? boy, uh, Duffy. Leave your income tax to me and the colonel. We'll reduce it. Okay. Uh, colonel, uh, warm you all up the reducing egg. <laughs> We're gonna do Duffy's tax. I'll say, Archie. Oh, Colonel Stoopnagel, this is Danny Seymour, our announcer. Oh, really? I, I once invented an announcer, but it didn't look anything like you. Uh, did it work, Colonel? Yes, except for one thing. I couldn't invent anything for my announcer to say. Oh, well, Colonel, the most helpful statements aren't invented anywhere. They're facts. Oh, sure, like what Danny here has to say. Yes, a fact like this, for instance, ladies and gentlemen. According to a nationwide survey of thousands of people, the two things most wanted in a laxative are first, speed... And second, gentleness. Well, those are two of the very things that have made Sal Hepatica famous. 
Remember that when you wake up feeling dull and headachy because you need a laxative, and take that famous saline, Sal Hepatica, right away. Well, then you can depend on speedy Sal Hepatica to bring exceptionally gentle relief, and usually within an hour. So you can see, with Sal Hepatica, it's not necessary to wait till night to take the laxative needed in the morning, and consequently, not necessary to risk feeling miserable all day. And Sal Hepatica has this additional advantage. Sparkling Sal Hepatica also helps sweeten an upset stomach by helping to reduce excess gastric acidity. So before another day goes by, ask your druggist for a bottle of Sal Hepatica, remembering this caution use only as directed. Then any time you need a laxative, morning, noon, or night, see how much faster you feel better when you take gentle, speedy Sal Hepatica. <laughs> Mrs. Duffy, you make coke. Now, we got to get it down from uh, 200 bucks to about 50. All right, Archie, let's get to work. What's the weekly income of this joint? Uh, the weekly income? You uh, mean a, a good week or a bad week? An average week. That's a bad week. Uh, oh, I'd say about $30. Uh... Okay, we'll put it on the machine. About $30. Mm-hmm. That's A, B, O, U, T, 30. Colonel, if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. <clears throat> Wait a minute. Here's some more figures, Colonel. Put them on the machine while I answer the phone, huh? Okay. Uh, hello? Uh, hello, Duffy? Huh? You what? You bought the mink, huh? What kind? Cheap mink? I never heard of it. How do you spell it? C-H-I-P. Duffy, that's chipmunk. <laughs> Well, she probably liked the chipmunk, Duffy. Sure. Yeah, that's right. She ain't got no taste. Uh, what? Huh? Oh, the machine is going great. Yeah, doing a great job. I'll call you back. Uh, what happened, Colonel? Tilt. <laughs> but it'll be all right. Uh, well, just see that the tax ain't no more than 50 bucks now. Uh, what do we do now? Well, I've entered all the figures. Now I set the automatic adjustment. I check the barometric pressure. <laughs> and we're all set to go. Take it away, reducer Nagel. There. You'll find your tax total on this little white card. This little card, huh? Yes, read it. 
You have a pleasant disposition <laughs> and make friends easily. Pass a little extra service. Your tax is on the back. On there the back? Yeah. Oh, oh, on the back. The total? Total income tax, $2,000. Colonel, who invented this machine? You or Morgenthau? Hey, really, I'm embarrassed. This is the first time this has ever happened. You sure? Positive. It's the first time I ever used the machine. <laughs> Let me try it again. Let's look at a card now. You are a person who loves to travel. Read the other side. Pay the $2,000 or we'll send you to Alcatraz. Too <laughs> mm. stuffy can't afford to pay $2,000. Archie, you've given me an idea. I hereby renounce the reducer nagel. I hereby christen this machine the Tactual Q Increaser Nagel. Increase in angle. Yes. It's to help poor people to get into the higher income tax bracket. Oh, but, Colonel, please, Duffy was buying a mink on a strength at $150. We was going to save him on a reducing angle. What? Oh. Hello? Hello, Duffy. Did you buy the coat? You did, huh? Did she come back? Yeah, huh? And she liked the coat, and, and you're both very happy, huh? You don't know how to thank me, huh? Look, Duffy... If I was to tell you... No, I can't spoil it. Duffy, I hope you and Mrs. Duffy will continue to be happy for many, many years. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't tell it to the guy. They're, they're too happy, you know. I'll, I'll pay the 150 out of my own pocket, huh? It's time to leave Duffy's Tavern for the evening, but let's all meet here again next week when our guest will be Gertrude Lawrence. And in the meantime, if you have a cold... Remember Minute Rub. If you need a laxative... Remember Sal Hepatica. And if you have a half hour next Tuesday evening at this same time, remember... Uh, Duffy's Tavern, what do you eat? Meat to eat, Archie, the manager speaking. Duffy ain't... Oh, hello, Duffy. Yeah, that's right. Next week, Gertrude Lawrence. Ooh! Uh, yeah, the English actor. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get all dressed up, Duffy, you know, in a top hat and a white tie and a manacle. A manacle. A pair of one-eyed glasses. Yeah, like them C&I Englishmen wear. Uh, well, good night, Duffy. See you next week. Mothers, why let your boy or girl suffer from neglected cold symptoms? Get after your child's cold distress quickly and easily with Minute Rub, modern chest rub. All you do is massage Minute Rub on your youngster's back and chest. For rubbing on Minute Rub promptly helps soothe cold discomfort. And Minute Rub's menthol vapors help relieve congestion in nose and throat. Minute Rub is greaseless and it's stainless too. Won't harm clothes or linen. So get after your child's cold distress with his famous modern chest rub, Minute Rub. M-I-N-I-T-R-U-B. Minute Rub. This is the Blue Network. 
We'll have to hear more from Colonel Stoopnagel one of these days. He was the guest star in that episode of Duffy's Tavern three months before D-Day in 1944. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The role of women on the home front during World War II can hardly be overestimated. It wasn't just Rosie the Riveter or the pilots of the Women's Air Transport Auxiliary. American women of all regions, races, and classes were mobilized everywhere in the United States, as we're about to hear dramatized in the Red Cross's syndicated program, This Is My Story. It was written by a woman, Connie Lee, who worked steadily in radio and the movies until she and her husband were blacklisted in the 1950s. The star is Gracie Allen, and the story shows some of her range as a performer. She's supported by a cast that includes Verna Felton, whom we heard last week on December Bride, and whose voice you've heard in a slew of Disney animated movies, and the man of a thousand voices, Mel Blanc. From the middle of the war in 1943, it's the Red Cross syndicated series, This Is My Story. This is my story. Goodbye. If I never see you again in this life, I want you to know that I will miss you very much. <laughs> you have been a good husband, and I have tried to be a good wife. I have left my will in the top left-hand drawer of my dressing table under my jewel box. Goodbye, Jim. Oh, dear, I hope I'll be brave enough. This is my story. The American Red Cross gratefully presents Gracie Allen, who has come here to tell the story of Mrs. Laura Graham, who wrote her will and wrote a goodbye note to her husband, and then left her lovely home to do the bravest thing she had ever done in a somewhat spoiled but very happy life. The names are fictitious. The story is true. And now, Gracie Allen as Mrs. Laura Graham, who sits at the Louis Quince writing desk in her fluffy, fussy boudoir, writing a farewell note to her husband, Jim, while Emma, her maid, stands by, weeping a little. Your always loving wife, Laura. P.S. Don't be unhappy, darling. One must do what... Oh, Oh, yes. One must do what one must do. There. Oh, Mrs. Graham. Oh, Emma, will you stop sniffling? Before you start me doing it again. Now, now give this to Mr. Graham the moment he comes home. I'll meet Oh, Mrs. Graham, do you have to? You're much too nervous to give away a pint of blood. But knitting sweaters and buying bonds is not enough. We must make sacrifices. I've made up my mind, Emma. That is, I... uh, Yes? One must do what one must do. Mrs. Laura Graham. Here I am. If you'll just sit at this desk, please, one of our ladies in gray will ask you a few questions. 
How do you do? Oh, I'm not doing very well at all, thank you. That answers the first question. Is this the first time you ever came here to donate your blood? I feel drained of it already. Your skin doesn't match my uniform yet. You're not the first jittery person who's come here. Some people seem to think we have a group of fumbling amateur nurses punching holes in their arms. This isn't so, Mrs. Graham. We have physicians, registered nurses, and skilled technicians who do the actual blood taking. We ladies in gray, nurses' aides, canteen workers, staff assistants, and uh, members of the motor corps stand by ready to help the doctors and nurses in whatever way we can. By the time you leave this building, you'll have passed through the hands of at least a dozen people. Oh, that's almost as many as I go through at a beauty parlor. I'm starting to relax already. That's fine. Now, um, are you 110 pounds or over? Oh, goodness, over. Have you had anything to eat before coming here? Oh, I couldn't look at food. Oh, but I did have a cup of black coffee. I think that takes care of everything, Mrs. Graham. You know, I certainly feel better for talking to you. You know, you look terribly familiar. Haven't I seen you somewhere? Perhaps it was at the governor's ball. Oh, now, do I look as though I'd go to those dull affairs? I have to go to them. I'm the governor's wife. Oh! I'll take your hat and coat, and in a minute you'll be given a card to check. Would you like to read a magazine? Oh, no, thank you. I'll just sit here and cool off. You do look a little flushed. I mean, that's not flushing. It's blushing. I I think I insulted one of your ladies in gray. The governor's wife? Yes. <laughs> I'm sure she can take it. You, you think she can? I ought to know. I'm her daughter. Oh, my word. Everybody down here is a celebrity. Oh, no, they ain't, lady. My kid sister's one of them nicest aides. Oh, is is your sister here now? Uh, No, she goes on duty after she gets home from Lockheed. Goodness, I should think her boyfriend would object. Oh, he can't, ma'am. He was at Pearl Harbor. This is Laura Graham. Oh, coming. Oh, uh, will you tell your sister I'm so sorry about her boyfriend? Oh, oh, he ain't dead, lady. He got a load of plasma from the Red Cross pumped into his veins, and he's okay now. He's the reason my kid sister's here, and I'm here. I guess you're here. Oh, you're right, young man. Mrs. Graham... Will you take this card and check the answers so we can have your medical history? You can sit right down here next to Mrs. Darcy. Oh, fine. How do you do, Mrs. Darcy? Hello. Oh, let's see now. Oh, I haven't had malaria. Or tuberculosis, a persistent cough, or a pain in the chest. I'm not short of breath. My feet don't swell. And I don't have fainting spells. And I weigh over 110 pounds. Well, I guess I'm able to give my blood to some poor lad in Guadalcanal, North Africa, or even here back home, Miss Darcy. I'm giving my blood for my boy, Sammy. Oh, are you? He wrote me and said maybe they'll have to give him a blood transfusion before he can get well. Do you think if Sammy knew the blood they were giving him was mine, he he might get better fast? Oh, I'm sure. But I didn't know they had a personalized blood service. But, Mrs. Darcy, I'm sure Sammy will get better. He has such a brave little mother. Little? I weigh 125 pounds. Well, I'd never know it. Mrs. Darcy, the nurses are ready to give you the physical examination now. Goodbye, Mrs. Graham. Oh, oh, Mrs. Darcy, you dropped something. Why, Mrs. Darcy, you've got weights in the hem of your dress. I I wanted to weigh more, so they'd take my blood. Oh, 
I'm afraid you're underweight, Mrs. Darcy. Suppose you come in the canteen and have a cup of coffee. But, Sammy, Oh, but... now, don't you worry about him, Mrs. Darcy. If he can't have your blood, he'll have mine. There, Mrs. Graham, we've taken your temperature, pulse, blood pressure, and blood count here. All set now for your donation. Oh, oh well, uh, when you're through taking my blood, I want this put on the bottle. To Sammy Darcy... From a friend of his mother. Well, Mrs. Graham, I'm afraid that's impossible. Goodness me, why? Well, by the time the blood goes through a certain number of processes and becomes dry plasma, it doesn't matter whose it is as long as it's capable of doing its work. Oh, dear, what'll I tell Mrs. Darcy? Well, you leave that to us, Mrs. Graham. I'm sure we can convince her that the plasma being sent to Sammy goes to him with as many heartfelt wishes for a speedy recovery as she herself would send him. Oh, well, that's true, nurse. I, I, I haven't a son in the service... And yet I know with every drop of blood leaving my veins will go a prayer that it will do somebody else's son a world of good. That's a lovely thought, Mrs. Graham. Now, I, uh, I think one of the nurse's aides is ready to take you to a car. Well, here I go. Oh, if only my husband could see me. You know, Mr. Graham says I'm so delicate, the least little thing upsets me. He, he'd never believe I could be so, so brave and casual about this. I am being casual, aren't I? Laura! Laura! Yes, Jim? Why, Jim Green, what on earth are you doing down here? What am I doing down here? I come home and find Emma dissolved in tears, and your note, and your will. Now, I thought you'd gone off to commit suicide or something. What are you up to? Why, I... I... Jim, you mustn't shout so. You startle the people. It's not good for you to be startling people when you're giving blood. Uh, what? You, you mean you, you came down here to... Uh, this note, I, I thought you were going to die or something. Oh, nurse, you mustn't mind my husband. He, he's very excitable. He, he always gets things mixed up, don't you, Jim? Well, so help me, uh, Hannah. Jim? Sometimes I, I just don't know. Uh, nurse, Mrs. Graham doesn't know what she's doing. Well, I certainly do. Uh, she's in no condition to give to the blood bank. She, she's not, uh, not well. Uh, she's a very nervous woman. The, the, the time I cut my finger opening a can of beans she painted. Oh, Jim, that was ten years ago. And you haven't changed since. Oh, well, now that's where you're wrong, Jim. I've changed more in the last ten minutes than I've changed in the last ten years. Wonderful. Even if I don't believe it. And I'll probably have to carry you home, though. The Red Cross Motor Car will take care of your wife, Mr. Graham. If she has to be taken care of. I shall walk out of here under, under my own power. And with flying colors. How do I think of all those things at a moment like this? Nurse! Yes, Miss Graham? You may lead me to my cot. Yes, Mrs. Graham. Nurse, uh, shouldn't she be out by now? It takes 10 to 15 minutes, Mr. Graham. Here, have a cup of coffee and relax. No, no thanks. I... Oh, look, the door's open. Oh, the man. Oh, what a session. You sit right down here, sir. Coffee? Cocoa? Orange juice? Uh, coffee. Oh, and no sugar donut you had last time, please. I'll be right back. May I never go through that again? You... You mind this? And how? Well, if, if a husky like you suffered, a woman would probably mind it much more. Wouldn't she? Oh, now, look, mister, don't get me wrong. This is my fourth time here. Now, they could take a quart of blood out of me and I wouldn't mind it. But there was a dame in there this session that talked steady for ten minutes. 
I got busy listening to her. Oh, my poor Laura having to listen to a hysterical woman. She wasn't hysterical. She just talked and talked. I hate Gabby Danes. Say, she wasn't a... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here she comes now. Laura! Oh, hello, Jim. You're not simply Uh, Hey, look, mister. You can hit me right here on a jaw. <laughs> hit you? Why, oh, man, I, I've got to conserve my strength. You're looking at a new donor. Oh, Jim, I'm so proud. Of me, dear? No, darling, of the Red Cross. <laughs> All right, Mrs. Graham. And the Red Cross is proud of you. As every American is proud to know that every American agrees that in these times we must all do all we can do. Ladies and gentlemen, Gracie Allen, who has talked a lot as Laura Graham in our story, speaks now for herself and for the American Red Cross. Miss Allen. Thank you. Laura Graham sounded pretty silly, didn't she? But bless her, even Laura discovered and understood that we can all be brave and unselfish in our various ways in times like these. Can be and must be. It is a duty of each and every one of us to give all possible to the Red Cross so the worldwide program of this organization can keep pace with the advances of our armed forces. Thank you. The American Red Cross thanks Gracie Allen for her appearance on this program, arranged to the Hollywood Victory Committee. In the cast appearing with Miss Allen... Or Fred Mackay, Verna Felton, Beverly Brown, Sarah Berner, Mel Blank, and Jack Masser, all of whom donated their services. This is My Story was written by Connie Lee through the Hollywood Writers Mobilization Committee. Gracie Allen, doing her bit as so many American women did and continue to do in times of crisis, that was an episode of This Is My Story from sometime in 1943. This is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, where your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. According to the dictionary, the word snafu originated in the military during World War II as an acronym for Situation Normal All Fouled Up. And the dictionary further notes that fouled up is a euphemism. The reason I mention it is that the scriptwriter of tonight's Gunsmoke episode, John Meston, called his story The F.U., and you'll understand why when you've heard the September 20th, 1954 installment of the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. 
Smoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Chester. I sure am glad you're back. I've only been gone a couple of hours. Well, that's all it takes, a couple of hours. Only Becker's been shot. Huh? Only Becker? You know him, that little sodbuster lives out near Clear Spring. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's up at Doc's. You want to see him? Yeah. Well, tell me about it, Chester. Well, sir, all I know is he was gambling this morning over at the Texas Trail. He left there a little afternoon, and then some fellas found him laying in an alley with a bullet in him. Well, can he talk? No, sir. He's been unconscious the whole time. But Doc's working on him in here. Oh. Oh, hello, Matt. How is he, Doc? He's dead, Matt. About ten minutes ago. Oh. Honey Becker. Now, who'd have shot a harmless little man like that? Harmless is right. He didn't even have a pocket knife on him. And besides, he was shot in the back. Maybe it was an accident of some kind. Accident? Chester, I once tried to save a man who'd pulled a scythe across the back of his neck by accident. Yes, and I remember a boy who fell between the slats of a fence and got hung. But I never heard of a man shooting himself in the back by accident. Well, I meant maybe somebody else done it. Of course somebody else did it. I know that. I meant by mistake. Oh, Chester. Chester, are you sure you've been keeping your hat on when you're walking around in the sun? Oh, you're just mad because Oni Becker died on you, There was nothing I could do to save him. He bled to death. Inside. Oh, you did what you could, Doc. Yes, well, I, I think I did. Did uh, Arne say anything? Anything at all? No, Matt. He never even opened his eyes. Well, he was shot in the back, so it wasn't anybody he was fighting with. Well, I don't know, Mr. Dillon. Only was fighting or at least having an argument over a car this morning with that gambler. What's his name? Al Clovis? Over at the Texas Trail. He was. Oh, why didn't you say so before, Chester? Well, I why? never heard of this, uh, Al Clovis. Oh, he's only been here about a week, Doc. Chester, you wait here. I'm going over the Texas Trail. Kidding. Uh, is Al Clovis here? I was wondering when you'd get around to him. Uh, what do you mean? I heard about Oni Becker, and Al Clovis threatened him this noon just before Oni went out and got shot. Huh? Almost seemed like Al was trying to start a fight with him, Matt. Where was Clovis when it happened, Kitty? 
He wasn't in here. Yeah. Kitty, you know Al Clovis better than I do. Would you say he's the kind of a man who would murder Odie Becker because of an argument over cards? You know, shoot him in the back. I don't know him that well, Matt. Yeah, well, maybe he had another reason to kill him. If he did it. Shooting little Oni Becker's like shooting a pet deer. Makes about as much sense. Yeah. But usually when a man gets murdered, there's a reason of some kind for it. You mean it'd take more than plain anger to follow a man down an alley and shoot him in the back? Well, ordinarily it would. Al Clovis must have wanted Oni dead for some special reason, Matt. Maybe Oni had something on him. Yeah, maybe. He was in here a while ago, but he left. Well, I'll find him. He might be at the depot, Matt. Uh, at the depot? He said something about going to St. Louis. Now everything's been taken care of here. I didn't know what he meant at the time, but he said it loud, and I know the train leaves at 4.30. 4.30? Uh, That's about that now, isn't it? Well, maybe he said it just to throw you off his trail. Yeah, well, I'll find out. I'll see you later, Kitty. You better hurry, Matt. <laughs> Card go, Mr. Dillon. If Al Clovis ain't in there, he ain't on this train. Well, he might have fooled us after all, Chester. Chester, he could be riding west while we're heading east. We'll never find him if he is. Well, let's take a look into this car before we walk in, huh? Yes, sir. Well, I sure don't see him. Not in there, I don't. Yeah. Unless that's him down there, lying back with his hat pulled over his face. It could be. Well, it better be. Now, come on. Okay, sir. Hey, wake up, mister. Mm. Come on, come on, wake up. Mm. Quit bothering me. What do you want? Marshal Dillon. What are you doing here? Keep your hands on your knees, Clovis. Tight. Well, what's this all about, Marshal? You carrying a gun? Why should I carry a gun? Stand up, Clovis. Come on, stand up. Okay. What for? All right, search him, Chester. Yes, sir. No, keep the one side of him out of my way. Don't you try nothing, Clovis. Why should I? I told you I wasn't armed. No, ain't nothing on him. All right. Okay, you can sit down, Clovis. I don't understand this, Marshal. What are you looking for? I'm looking for the man who murdered Oni Becker this afternoon. (laughs) You mean you followed me and got on this train because you thought I killed Oni? It's about 100 miles to Great Bend, Clovis. We'll get off there and take tomorrow's train back to Dodge. Oh, you're making a big mistake, Marshal. While you were riding up and down on this railroad, whoever did kill Oni Becker's leaving the country for good. You'll never catch him now. What you're trying to say is that you don't admit killing him yourself, isn't it? I'm not a murderer, Marshal. No, we'll see. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You heard Oni and I had a little argument this morning. 
didn't you? Sure. That doesn't prove anything. I argue with lots of men. You threatened to kill him. Ah, that was just to scare him. He was being kind of stubborn about it all. You know what those farmers are like. I suppose it takes a stubborn man to grow potatoes. Well, if you're so innocent, why did you announce everything had been taken care of and that you were going to St. Louis? Did I say that, Marshal? You know, Clovis, I can always kick you in the head and take you back to Dodge in a sack. Now, why did you run? I'm not running. No reason why I should. That's the truth, Marshal. Where were you when Oni Becker was killed? <laughs> I was wondering when you'd ask me that. I suppose you got an alibi. You know Mr. Botkin, don't you, Marshal? I ought to. Botkin's run the Dodge Bank ever since it was an old whiskey barrel. Well, I was with him in his office at the bank, Marshal. I suppose you'll take his word for it. Yeah, sure I will. Well, we were discussing the money I placed in the bank when I arrived in Dodge a week ago. $5,000, Marshal. Mr. Botkin is going to transfer it to St. Louis for me. Chester. Yes, sir? Go up and tell the engineer to stop the train at Jane's Crossing. Stop the train? There's a ranch about a mile from there where we can borrow some horses. Well, I thought you said we were spending the night at Great Bend, Marshal. I changed my mind, Clovis. Your story doesn't make much sense, and I want to get back to Dodge and find out why. about midnight. Sure is, and I'm tired. Haven't been on a horse in years. Oh, well, why didn't you say so, Clovis? We'd have borrowed a wagon for you. Never mind, Chester. Now, you take him on down to the jail and lock him up, huh? I'm going to stop here at Mr. Botkin's house. His light's still on. Want me to go in with you, Marshal? I'll let you know what he has to say, Clovis. I'll be along in a little while, Chester. All right, sir. Mr. Barkin. Oh. Uh, well, Marshal, come in. Come in. I wouldn't have bothered you this late, Mr. Barkin, but I saw your light was on and I figured you were still up. Up? Of course I'm up. How could I sleep tonight? Uh, why? What's wrong? Where have you been, Marshal? The whole town of Dodge has been looking for you. Fine time for you to be up riding off somewhere, as I must say. Well, tell me what happened. What happened? Don't you know even yet? What are you doing here at my house? Well, if you'll calm down, I'll tell you. You'll tell me? I'd better tell you, Marshal. Well, you're out gallivanting around in the prairie somewhere. My bank was held up. What? About five o'clock, just as we were closing. Three men that got away with over $25,000. Every cent of cash I had in that vault, Marshal. Well, didn't anybody try to follow them? No, they tied me and them cashiers up so tight they were miles out of town before we could get loose. There's a few men saw him leave, but they were afraid to do anything about it. And, of course, the United States Marshal, he wasn't even in town. Did you get a look at him? No. No, they were masked. Nobody I've found can even identify their horses. They're just gone, Marshal. With $25,000. 
Look, Mr. Buck, and I came here to ask you a question. It might have something to do with your bank being robbed. Oh? Well, what is it? Was Al Clovis with you in your office about noon today? Clovis? Yes, he was for a couple of hours. Why? He had some money on deposit? Yeah. At $5,000 cash. Of course, that's gone, too. That's part of the money they took. I'm afraid Clovis is broke now. Along with me and a lot of other people. Well, maybe he isn't as broke as you think. Oh, he's broke. Unless you can get that money back, Marshal. Look, I got an idea. I might find it for you, Mr. Barkin. And it won't take very long, either. locked up, Mr. Dillon. He won't be taking no more trains for a while. Good. What'd you find out from Mr. Botkin? And I'll tell you and Clovis at the same time, Chester. Well, he's right in the first cell. Well, Marshal, come to turn me loose? Mr. Botkin says your alibi is good, Clovis. If you'd have believed me in the first place, you'd have saved us all a lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, let me out. I don't want to spend the night here. You better get used to it, Clovis. You're going to be spending a lot of nights in here. What? At least a month or two of them. No. You can't keep me here, Marshal. It's illegal. Is it? Of course it is. Well, maybe you know more about the law than I do, Clovis, but I run this jail, and you're going to stay here a long time. Now, what's more, I'm going to tell the whole town where you are. Come on, Chester. Marshal, I demand to be released at once. Now, come back here. It'll cost you your job if you keep me here. Shut the door, Chester. Marshal, you can't do this. Marshal. You really going to keep him locked up, Mr. Dillon? I am. But he ain't done nothing. I mean, if Mr. Botkin said he is with him... Well, Clovis didn't kill only Becker, if that's what you mean. Well, then why don't you turn him loose? Chester, the bank was robbed at $25,000 today. It was? Yeah, just after we got on the train. Looks to me like Oni Becker was murdered just to get me to follow Al Clovis out of town. Well. Uh, we'll find out in a few minutes. I don't think Clovis can stand the idea of sitting in jail while his partners ride off with all that money. You mean he was supposed to get out of here and meet them as soon as his alibi was made good, huh? Well, that's the only way it makes sense to me. Marshal. Marshal Dillon. Well, it didn't take as long as I thought. Come on. Marshal, I got to talk to you. All right, go ahead. You really going to keep me in jail here? You mean that? That's all you wanted. Don't bother no, me again. No, don't go, Marshal. What do you want then? It's late, Clovis. I want to get to bed. Uh, Marshal, I'll make you a deal. About what? If I help you get back whatever was stolen from the bank today. Can I keep my 5000 out of it? How did you know the bank was robbed, Clovis? You're smart, Marshal. I can tell you got this all figured, holding me in jail and all. But I'm smart, too. Are you? Smart enough to know you need me as much as I need you. You'll never find those men without me, Marshal. But I can take you to where they are, and I'll identify them for you. Why? 
All I want out of it is my $5,000. Now, that's mine. You can do what you like with the rest. The court will have to decide about your 5000 not me. We uh, think there's a chance I might get it? Well, I don't know. But you're a gambler, aren't you? It'll help my showing you where they are, won't it? Yeah, it'll help. Okay. I'm supposed to meet them tonight or early tomorrow, Marshal. They won't wait longer than that. All right, who are they, Clint? They're not friends of mine, Marshal. I never saw them before two weeks ago in St. Louis. And they're all hiding behind summer names. Yeah. How far is the way to meeting place? Hey, it's an old cabin, about 20 miles from here. They there now? Nobody stopped them here, did they? No, thanks to you. But I'm helping you now, Marshal. If I find your partners, you are. Chester, mm-hmm. go get our horses. We going out there tonight, Mr. Dillon? Would you rather try it in broad daylight, Chester? No, sir. <laughs> Sure, you can find this cabin, Clovis? I made the ride out here one night just to be sure. I swear I can't hardly see nothing. I wish that moon wasn't all scudded up with clouds. Chester, you still don't understand that if you can see them, they can see you. Chester, I know you're right, Mr. Dillon. It sure looks like rain, though. We're almost there. Good. Uh, Marshal? Yeah. How are you going to take them, three men? What's the matter, Clovis? You getting scared? Uh, you know what they'll, what they'll do to me if you don't take them, Marshal. Now, like I said, you're a gambler, aren't you? Hey, look, why don't you give me a gun? I'll help you. We'll manage. You can trust me, Marshal. I'm on your side now. Clovis, I wouldn't trust a man like you if you were in church praying. Wait. Somewhere over there. Yeah. There it is. A little clump of elder. The cabin's in there. Eh? You see the light? Yeah, yeah. Are you sure that's it? Of course I am. Okay, let's get out. Chester, mm-hmm. I'm going to go up on foot and have a look. You stay here with Clovis. Okay, sir. What if they hear him and come out and shoot him? Mr. Dillon ain't exactly green at this game, Clovis. They wouldn't kill me. They'd burn me or something first. Can't blame them much. Uh... Wish I'd stayed in jail. Wished I'd let him keep the money. Something's sure to go wrong here. 
Unless maybe I outsmart him. You ain't gonna outsmart nobody, Clovis, so forget about okay, it. Okay, okay. I declare I never seen a darker night than this is. No. Neither did I. Here, get off. Get off. Uh, uh, get off. What's the matter? It's my horse. He's standing on my foot. We'll push him off. I can't. Come on, help me, Chester. No, for pity's sake. Come on. Ow. Give him. That's all you gotta do. Back. Here, what are you doing? Clovis? I got your gun, Chester. Now shut up. Don't move. But you give shut me up, that I said. gun. I... That's better. Hey, what's that? Thunder, Clovis. You'll be hearing a different kind when Mr. Dillon gets back here. He's not coming back here. We're going to him. If he shoots anybody, it'll be you, because you're going to be right in front of me. Like this. All right. Start walking, Chester. Go on. That's far enough. Stop here. We'll pick up the marshal now and go on to the cabin. Now call him and... Tell him how you're fixed. Go on and call him. Mr. Dillon? Mr. Dillon? He ain't nowhere around Yes, here. he is. Tell him. Go on. Clovis got my gun, Mr. Dillon. Tell him. If he doesn't walk over here with his hands up, I'll shoot you. He's going to take us both to the cabin, Mr. Dillon. He says he'll shoot me. You heard him, Marshal. I'll kill him, sure, if you try anything. He ain't close enough. I tell you, he's probably clear up there at the cabin. Okay. Okay, start walking, Chester. Straight ahead. Once I get you inside the cabin, he'll have to give up. Unless he wants you dead. You hurt, Chester? No, sir. His gun just went off when you hit him. All right, get the gun quick. Come on, come on. I got it, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's get up to that cabin. They know we're out here now. Oh, they're getting away, Mr. Dillon. They're gone. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I just don't know what to say. Then don't say anything. Let's try to find our horses. We'll get Clovis later. We'll never find them horses in the dark this way. Uh, rain. Well, that's it. There won't be a track left now. Well, there go three killers and $25,000. Mr. Dillon, I, I just feel awful about this. How'd he get your gun away from you anyway? Well, he said his horse was standing on his foot, so I... So was... you walked up and let him pull your gun right out of the holster, huh? Yes, sir, that's about the way it happened. Dylan, you should have let him take me into that cabin. They'd have killed me, but you could have caught them. They wouldn't have got away like they did. Yeah, I know. I was close enough to hear what Clovis said. Well, then why'd you save me? Everything would have been okay. If oh, you yeah, to... yeah. Everything would have been okay. Oh, most everything, Chester. Well, let's just don't stand here in the rain talking about it. Come on. Oh, 
my, what a terrible mess. Ah, it was my choice, Chester. Not yours. Chester. Thank you, Mr. Dillon. Mr. Dillon? Would you like a whorehound drop? and directed by Norman McDonald stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner and Lawrence Dobkin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Remember next week at this same time, Chesterfield will bring you another transcribed story of the Western Frontier on Gunsmoke. This is the CBS Radio Network. The Gunsmoke episode titled The F.U. from the very end of summer in 1954 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or follow us on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And by all means, check out our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. We hear a lot these days about body shaming, but it was a phenomenon long before it acquired that name. It plays a part in tonight's Dragnet episode called The Big Complex. It comes from January 11, 1955, NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a juvenile detail. In the past six weeks, a junior high school has been broken into three times, and extensive damage has been done by vandals. Your job? Investigate. It was Monday, March 9th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of juvenile detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Powers. My name's Friday. We're on our way out from the office. It was 8.32 a.m. when we got to the Hillside Junior High School, the vice principal's office. Good morning. May I help you? Yes, ma'am. Police officers, we'd like to see Miss Ridley. Oh, yes. You've been here before, haven't you? That's right. Uh-huh. Miss Ridley's expecting you. You can go right in. Thank you Bye. very much. Come in. Good morning, officers. Come in, please, and sit down. Thank you. We seem to be getting more than our share of trouble. Yes, ma'am. What is it this time? 
Same as before, a little more serious. Cafeteria? Yes, wait until you see the place. Just downright vandalism. Food thrown all over on the walls and the floor. Mm -hmm. But they didn't stop there. What do you mean? The student's supply store was broken into. In fact, that's where the entrance was made. Yeah? Girl in charge says that a number of items are missing. What was taken? Things the students use in school. Notebooks, pencils, fountain pens. I see. There were a lot of transportation books taken, too. Those are the kind the kids use on the buses and streetcars, is that what yes, you mean? that's right. Well, they have serial numbers, don't they? Yes, we keep a record of them in the office. You'll be able to give us a list of the numbers on the missing books? Oh, yes. All right, fine. What if we take a look at that storeroom? Surely. It's right next to the office. Sure. I wasn't so sure the last time, but I am now. What do you mean? About who's responsible for this. You got an idea who might have done it? Well, I'm pretty sure it must be a student or a former student. Why do you say that, Miss Ridley? Well, there's the window they entered. Mm-hmm. Somebody must have known that this window opened into the storeroom. Yeah. Screen's torn here and the window's broken. You have somebody special in mind who might have done this? No. It wouldn't be fair to cast suspicion on any boy or girl without proof. Well, have you had trouble with any students since we were here last? Yes. What was wrong, ma'am? During study periods, a group of five boys were causing minor disturbances. Uh-huh. But it's all been straightened out. I had a talk with the leader of the group. Found out he wanted to take part in school athletics. His parents didn't want him to, afraid he might be injured. Mm-hmm. So I called them in for a conference. We talked, and they finally agreed to let the boy participate in school sports. Mm-hmm. That's all there was to it. Haven't had any trouble since. How about the other boys? They weren't really bad. Without a leader, they just settled down. I'm sure it wasn't any of them. Mm-hmm. What if you could tell us if anything has been moved in here? No. This is just the way we found it. Mm-hmm. wonder why they didn't mess this room up, too. I don't know. I've been teaching for 20 years, and I'm pretty sure of one thing. What's that, ma'am? Children do wrong, but not because they want to be tough or brave. Usually because they're afraid of something. Mm-hmm. Most of them are pretty frightened kids. They need help. Well, we'll buy that. The problem is, what happens to them if they don't get it? I'm afraid you know the answer to that one better than I do. They'll still be around. Yes? As frightened adults. In the cafeteria, we found conditions about the same as we had after the previous acts of vandalism at the school. The refrigerator had been ransacked. Cartons of milk along with containers of ice cream and frozen foods had been smashed against the walls and the floor. The tables had been overturned and the chairs had been thrown around and broken. The floor was covered with glass. Frank put in a call to Leighton Prince and they sent a crew out to go over the storeroom and the cafeteria. Miss Ridley told us that she had already notified school security. Before we left, she furnished us with a complete list of stolen articles and the serial numbers for the missing student transportation books. We returned to Georgia Street and met with Captain Powers. You're pretty sure it's Jupiter's? Yeah, the kind of stuff that was taken, the damage done, sure points that way. Any help from Miss Ridley? Yeah, but she couldn't give us any names. No teacher-pupil problems? Yeah, she mentioned a minor case, which said it had been cleared up. Mm-hmm. This is the third time in six weeks for the school, isn't it? Yeah. Kids don't usually travel very far for these deals. It's a good chance of some of them from the school. Well, now, the way it looks, if they try to peddle the stuff to the other kids, we might be able to get a lead on them. Mm-hmm. There's a hitch to that, though. What do you mean? 
Well, Miss Ridley said that she was going to make an announcement to the student body. Yeah. She's going to tell them to be on the lookout for the stolen articles. Mm-hmm. Kids that took the stuff are in school, they might lay low for a while. That's it. How much was taken? About $500 worth of school supplies. Pretty good haul. Yeah. What do you want to do about it? Well, if it's all right with you, Frank and I'd like to put a stake out on the school. All right, when? We know the janitors work into the early morning hours on Fridays. Yeah. So it figures the school must be broken into sometime on Saturday or Sunday. All right, when do you want to start? This coming weekend. Okay, I'll arrange a clearance for you with school security. Right. Any more help you need, let me know. Whoever did it must have something against the cafeteria. Place was a real mess. Yeah. Bad enough the first couple of times. Didn't leave anything in the freezers this trip. Sure doesn't make much sense. I don't know. Maybe it does. What? Each time they hit the cafeteria, right? Yeah, that's right. They didn't tear up the storeroom. Well, threw a few pencil boxes around. That's about all. Yes, but every time food has been destroyed. That's right. Well, we've got a reason for doing it. Yeah? Somebody that can't resist the urge to eat all the time doesn't like being overweight. So without knowing why they do it, they destroy food. Mm-hmm. It could be a part of it. Anyhow, it's only a theory, but it might hold water. Yeah, well, that's true, but we don't know if it's a gang we're after or just one person. Another thing, they've broken in three times. Might have been by different kids. Good questions, all of them. Yeah. That's why you get paid, hmm? to get the answers. kept in contact with Miss Ridley during the rest of the week, but as far as she knew, none of the stolen articles showed up. Captain Powers talked with the school security section of the Board of Education, and Frank and I staked out in the school on Saturday and Sunday. There was no disturbance. We went back the following weekend. Saturday passed without trouble. Sunday, 7.34 p.m., we were sitting in the vice principal's office. Frank, yeah, come on. Right. All right, son, come on, party's over. What? Come on, tell us. Grab him, Frank. Let me go, let me go. Take it easy, boy. Now, take it easy. This isn't going to help. Just hold still. What's your name? Jerry. What's your last name? Beckel. You've done this before? Come on, son, answer me. All right, let's go. You going to put me in jail? We'll see. I'm not afraid of you cops. There's no reason you should be. Why'd you throw all this food around? I don't know. You haven't got a reason? No. She went to a lot of trouble to catch me. Not too much, son. Huh? You made it easy. Before leaving the school, Frank called school security and notified them of the broken window and the damage done by Jerry Beckel. We drove back to Georgia Street to question the subject further. On the way down, he refused to say anything. At the office, he told us he lived at 1206 Walnut Street. Frank went to check Central Juvenile Index. 8.42 p.m. That's all. Not going to tell you any more. Now, let's get one thing straight, son. You're in trouble. We'd like to help you, but you've got to play ball with us. We'll level with you, but you've got to play it the same way. Now, do you understand? Yeah. All right. Now, we can't do anything for you unless you want us to. Unless we know why you do these things, it'll be pretty hard for you to find a way out. Is that clear? I guess so. Well, the only way we can find out is if you tell us the truth. Joe? Yeah. The boy has no previous record. Mm-hmm. All right, how about it? You ready to answer our questions now, son? Sure. But it won't do any good. Why do you say that? Can't change my looks, can you? Well, why? There's no reason to do that. You look healthy to me. Sure, I'm healthy. Fat and ugly, too. That's why I had the trouble with Miss Ridley. Well, I suppose you tell us about it. She kicked me out of school. Why? Fight. Who were you fighting with? Oh, different guys. Why'd you fight? called me names. 
Floyd, go ahead. It's my fault. I can't help how I look. You sure that's why you had the fights? They wouldn't let me alone. Suppose you think I'm real good looking, huh? Son, I told you we'd level with you. You're not an ugly kid. Now, it seems to me you're imagining a lot. Sure. I suppose they call me Lard Barrel and Witch Man because they imagined it too. Maybe they got another reason. Like what? To needle you. If you didn't let them know it bothered you, they probably wouldn't have kept it up. They called you names to get you into fights. Don't you think that's it? That's what you say. Well, that's what we believe. She didn't have to kick me out of school. How many fights you have, Jack? I don't know. Well, you must have some idea. Quite a few. Miss Ridley talked to you? Yeah. She gave you more than one chance, didn't she? Yeah. But the kids kept after me. Wouldn't let me alone. You don't like Miss Ridley, do you? Why should I? Is that why you broke into the school? Maybe. How many times did you go in? Three. Did you steal the things from the storeroom? Yeah. Where are they? Hmm. You live with your father and mother? Yeah. Any brothers or sisters? Two brothers, three sisters. Well, now, when you had the trouble at school, did Miss Ridley talk to your parents? No. She didn't get in touch with them at all, huh? Sure, she tried, but they didn't go in to see her. Is there any reason why they didn't? No, just didn't go, that's all. Well, I guess we better go out and have a talk with them this time. Why? Well, they'll have to know about this trouble that you're in. Maybe if we talk to them, we can sort of work this problem out together, don't you think? That won't do any good. Why not, son? They think I'm fat and ugly. <laughs> Jerry Beckel went on to say that he was now attending the Jansen School, one of two maintained in the city for juveniles who have difficulty making adjustments in normal school life. He also told us that on all three occasions he had been alone when he broke into the Hillside School. We drove out to his home. It was a small frame house badly in need of repair. We met his father, Henry Beckel. We told him the reason for our visit. So you just can't stay out of trouble. First it's fighting and you get kicked out of school. Now this mess. What's the matter with you anyhow? I don't know, Dad. Excuse me, Mr. Beckel, but this kind of talk isn't going to get us anywhere. Your son has a definite problem and he needs help. Sure, he's got a problem. He's no good. Never has been, never will be. You want to take the boy outside? Sure. Come on, son. I suppose you're going to give me the answers. You sound like you think it's my fault he got into this trouble. Well, you might have helped keep him out of it. Sure, just follow him around all day and night, slap his wrist when he steps out of line. You were asked to go over to his school when he had trouble before. Why didn't you go? I didn't have the time. I got to worry about five other kids. They got to eat. Can't be taking time away from work just because one of them can't keep his nose clean. What about your wife? What do you mean? Well, couldn't she have gone over to the school? Mm-hmm. Why don't you ask her? Is she here now? Nope. Gone out, probably at a movie. Says she has to have some fun, so she leaves me with the kids. Is there any reason why she couldn't go and talk with Miss Ridley about your son, Jerry? Yeah. She figured it was his own problem. Says he has to learn to fight his own battles. Well, that's fine when you know what you're fighting. Your boy doesn't. Nothing the matter with him. That's where you're wrong. Your son has an inferiority complex about his looks. Oh, big deal. That's one of the things that's wrong with him. You trying to tell me he gets into trouble because of the way he feels about his looks? It's possible. That's a good part of it. You gonna have to go to jail? I'm afraid he will. Don't you put kids on probation sometimes, let the parents look after them? Yeah, when they have parents. Well, couldn't you do that for Jerry? If you could show the authorities that you'd be responsible for him, it might work out. I could do that. There's something more you gotta do. Hmm? Find time to talk to him. We took the subject along with the recovered stolen property back to Georgia Street. The next day, Miss Ridley came down and identified the articles as those taken from the school storeroom. 
She said that Jerry Beckel had been in numerous fights before he was dismissed from school. During her investigation of the disorder, she found that Beckel had provoked several of the fights. She went on to say that the subject had been a below-average student, showing little interest in academic work. A petition was filed in Beckel's behalf with a juvenile court. The petition was sustained, and he was placed on probation with the Los Angeles County Probation Department and allowed to remain in the custody of his parents. March 31st, 8.06 a.m. I just picked up the reports for yesterday. You want to check them over? Yeah, all right. Thanks. I saw the skipper on the way in. Yeah. You remember that Austin boy? Car thief, wasn't he? Yeah. Violated his probation. Picked up again last night. That's too bad. What was that kid's name on the hillside school case, that heavy set boy? Hmm. One that thought he was so ugly? Yeah, that's the one. Beckel or someone. Yeah. What about him? Well, look here. The description on this report fits him. And listen to this. Victim states the subject said to her, What are you smiling for because I'm so ugly? It might be. What's the charge? Pretty bad this time. Yeah. Attempted robbery and shooting. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. robbery and shooting had occurred the previous night about 7.30 p.m. We checked with the Georgia Street Receiving Hospital and we found the victim, Linda Cotterly, had been treated for a minor flesh wound in the leg. She'd been shot with a 22 caliber pistol. The hospital report showed that she'd been released and allowed to return home. We contacted the officers working the case and checked the reports that had been filed. We asked if we could talk to the victim. Frank and I drove out to the address and we were admitted by her sister. Linda Cotterly was lying on a couch in the front room. We identified ourselves and asked her if she'd mind going over the story for us. I told the other officers all about it. Yes, we understand that. We saw their report, but we'd appreciate your telling us just what happened. Well, I guess it won't do no harm. suppose if more of you know about it, you'll have a better chance to catch a little stinker. That's right, ma'am. I shouldn't have said that. Ma'am? Little stinker. He was a big stinker. Oh, yeah. Could have killed me. Gives me cold chills thinking about it. We can understand. I wonder if you'd do something for me. Yes, ma'am. What's that? There's an afghan on the sewing machine in the dining room. Would you get it for me? Sure. Thank you. I wonder if you'd tell us the story. Sure. Well, you know, I was shot in the leg right here. Yes, we know. First, I thought it was just some kid playing a joke. Here you are, ma'am. Oh, thank you, Mr. Smith. Would you just drape it over me? Gently now. All right. That's fine. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. You said you thought it was a joke when this boy tried to hold you up. Yeah, he was so young-looking. Couldn't have been more than 15 or 16. Yeah. He was sort of chubby. Didn't look mean at all. I guess I should have been scared, but I wasn't. I just smiled. Did he say anything when he approached you? About it being a hold-up, you mean? That's right. No, came up to me. Had a gun in his hand. That's when you smiled. That's right. Then what happened? He got a real mad look on his face. Made him look tough. Is that when he spoke to you? How'd you know? Well, it's in the report. Well, that's right. I'd forgotten. Well, then I guess I can skip the part about what he said. We'd like to hear his exact words if you can remember him. He said, what are you smiling for, because I'm so ugly? Mm-hmm. Did you get a good look at him? Mm-hmm. Yes and no. Well, how do you mean that? Well, I did see him, but I don't remember his face too well. I know he was young. Not too good looking, but it's hard to say just what he did look like. You think you'd know him if you ever saw him again? Oh, I might. It was pretty dark, I'm not sure. All right, what happened after he spoke to you? I said no, meaning I didn't think he was ugly. And they told me to give him my purse. That's when it happened. What was that, then? Well, I got scared. I knew he wasn't fooling. I screamed and started running. Then I heard the noise, gunfire. Now, go ahead. Then I felt a sting on my leg when the bullet hit me. 
Kept on running, went past a vacant lot. Kept screaming, and then I saw a man across the street open his front door and look out. I ran up to him, told him I'd been shot, and he called the police. When you said this person was chubby, did you mean he was fat? Well, he was kind of big around the middle, and his face was sort of round-like. How about his hair? Was it dark? Yeah. Did you notice if it was straight or wavy? No. Tell me, you got an idea who this kid was? Well, we're not sure. Hmm. I know one thing. What's that? The kid should be taught a lesson. Yeah. Only one thing to do with them when they're that rotten. Slap them around a little and just forget about them. Well, that's the trouble here. Hmm? That's what they did to this boy. Frank and I went back to the office and checked the records on the petition, and we found that the subject's father, Henry Beckel, was employed at a lumber yard. We drove down to the place and found him stacking lumber in the back lot. What's on your mind this time? How's Jerry been getting along? All right, I guess. Attending school regularly? As far as I know, haven't had any bad reports. What's he been doing nights? He stays in the house. Goes out once in a while, never too late. Why? Where was he Monday night? Home. All night? Yeah. How about Tuesday? After supper, he went out for a while, came in early. Why? How's your son been acting lately? What do you mean? Has he had any trouble at school? I told you I haven't had any bad reports from him. How about at home? No trouble. We're trying to help him. Well, and as far as you know, he's been in pretty good spirits. Is that right? Look, you know he's no ball of fire, but he seems to be happy enough. Uh-huh. What is all this, anyway? We're just checking something out. Well, the way you ask questions, it sounds like you think Jerry's in trouble again. No, we didn't say that. Well, you don't have to. I know what you're getting at, and I don't like it. No reason to get upset. They're right. How would you feel? Jerry's been released to my custody. You're as much as telling me I haven't been doing the right thing. Well, if you're sure of that in your own mind, you don't have anything to worry about, do you? Well, I've done what I can, but I can't watch him all the time. What's he supposed to have done this time? We're not sure he's done anything. He wouldn't be nosing around if he didn't have some reason. Just something we got to check. All right. But if he got off on the wrong foot again, don't try to pin any tails on me. I've been doing the right thing. But I don't mind telling you, I've, I've never been too sure he would straighten out. Is that right? Yeah. But I'm doing what I can for him. Yeah. I feed him, I put clothes on his back, I put a roof over his head. What more can I give him? You own a gun, Mr. Beckel? What? I said you own a gun. Yeah, why? What kind? Twenty-two pistol. drove over to the Jansen School and we talked to the principal. We explained our business and he told us that Jerry Beckel hadn't been in school all day. We drove out to the boy's home and we met his mother. She said he wasn't there, but he'd probably be home about 5 o'clock. We went back to the car and waited. At 4.30 p.m., Henry Beckel returned from work. He drove into the yard and we met him at the back door. So you're here again. That's right. Let's go in the house, Beckel. You want it. Go ahead. Tell me what this is all about now. We'd like to talk to Jerry first. Well, if you want to see him, why didn't you go over to his school? We did. He wasn't there today. Mm-hmm. Kid's up to his old tricks again. Oh, they found you. This is my wife. We've met. What's the trouble? Jerry again. He wasn't in school today. Is that all? We should get out of the kitchen so I could fix supper. Yeah. You guys want to come on into the other room? All right. While we're waiting for your son, I wonder if you get that gun for us. I don't know why I should. you got no choice, fella. In the closet. You said that before. Now, where is it? Over there. Where? It's in that box, a small flat one. This one here? Yeah. When's the last time you fired this? 
don't know. It's been quite a while. What do you think? Well, it smells like it was fired recently. What time does Jerry usually get home, Beckle? We eat at 5.30. He'll be here by then. Uh-huh. You don't have to worry about him not showing up. He might skip school, but that fat, lazy slob won't miss a meal. Mm-hmm. Eats twice as much as the other kids. No wonder he looks like he does. Right, Let's go. Right. Go on in and wash your face. Okay. Hi, son. Hi. What do you want? Fred, we're going to have to take you with us. Can't he eat first? It won't hurt him any to miss a meal. Look at him. Looks like a fat toad. Well, why don't you say All something? right. Doesn't make any difference. You'd like to be rid of me anyway. Take it easy, son. You all want to hear it? Okay, I'll tell you. I shot her. We took Jerry Beckel down to Georgia Street for further questioning. After the outbreak at his home, he quieted down and he refused to say anything more. We talked to him for an hour and he finally admitted the whole story. All right, son, why'd you take the gun? To get some money, I guess. Well, now, was that the only way you could get it? I don't know. You could have gotten a job. I tried to. Yeah. Nobody wanted me. Well, how many people you asked for work? Just one place. And then you gave up? That was enough. I knew I wouldn't get a job. Did they tell you they wouldn't give you work? Didn't have to. I knew just the way they looked at me. Did you ever ask your father for money? Yeah. Never gave me any. He just read me off. What'd he say to you? What he always does. I'm fat, lazy, not good for anything but put my feet under the table and eat. So you decided to get out and rob somebody, huh? Yeah. Why'd you shoot at the woman? I'm not sure. Well, she didn't do you any harm, did she? No. She made me mad, laughed at me, just like all the rest. She did, huh? Sure. Because I'm fat. she say that? No. I could tell what she was thinking. You could, huh? People shouldn't laugh at somebody just because they're fat. Yeah. They got no right to do that. Maybe. But how much did you have? Huh? When you shot her. just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On July 14th, trial was held in Department 98, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. (laughs) Jerome Howard Beckel was remanded to the juvenile authorities and placed in the foster home where he was assured of 24-hour supervision. One of the conditions of his probation was that he received psychiatric aid by a doctor appointed by the court. Dragnet, the story of your police force in action is a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Dragnet, the episode called The Big Complex from the beginning of 1955. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at wamu.org. Throughout this Women's History Month, we've encountered a number of pioneers in old-time radio, and we're about to encounter a fictitious one. 
a woman reporter. Last week, we featured a story by one of the masters of dramatic radio writing, Kathleen Height, and we're about to hear another one by her. A woman and a woman's power and point of view are at the center of this one, an episode of Night Beat that has references to some of the most prominent international leaders of the time, including Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia, Winston Churchill of the United Kingdom, the UK's new Queen, Elizabeth II, and her husband, Prince Philip, and the American General Matthew Ridgway, who'd just been appointed Supreme Allied Commander of Europe for NATO. You'll hear long-distance phone calls that had to be made with operator assistance back then, and references to the artist Pablo Picasso and the military intelligence units called G2. From the 3rd of July in 1952 and NBC, it's a story that Kathleen Height wrote for the series Night Beat. Now, Paps Blue Ribbon presents transcribed Frank Lovejoy in... This is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Sometimes the best stories a reporter gets are the ones he can't print. The off-the-record conversations with people in high places. I knew Robbie wouldn't be talking for publication when I got his wire saying he was checking in at a small residential hotel on the north side for a few days. Robbie was a guy I'd gone to school with. He was also Maynard Robertson, Far East specialist for one of the big foundations. I knew he'd talk plenty and that I couldn't print a word of it. The lobby of the hotel was small and gray with a desk clerk to match. He smiled when I approached him, but there was something in his manner that strongly suggested Horatius at the bridge. Yes, sir. And what may we do for you? friend of mine's supposed to be registered here. Maynard Robertson? Mm-hmm. I see. Can you give me his room number? I'd like to go up and see him. Mm-hmm. I imagine you would. Just supposing Mr. Robertson is registered here. You're a friend of his, you say? Yes, I'm a friend of his. Is he here or isn't he? I don't imagine you'd have any way of proving you're a friend of his. Well, look, call his room and tell him that Randy Stone is here. Now, now, we won't be hasty, will we? Randy Stone, Randy Stone. Now, where have I heard that name before? I'm a reporter for the Star. Ah, uh-huh, and... I thought so. A reporter. Well, Mr. Stone, we have no Maynard Robertson registered here. And good day to you, sir. Oh, now, wait, wait. Just hold on a minute. Robbie's really a friend of mine. He asked me to come and see him. Oh, Robbie, is it now? <sighs> he sent me this telegram. Mm-hmm. It's signed, Robbie. Of course, it scarcely says Maynard Robertson. It scarcely would. Now, look. You've done a good job. You've screened me. I've got no concealed weapons, not even a typewriter. Mr. Stone, as you may or may not know, Maynard Robertson is just as sought after as he can be, particularly by gentlemen of the press, now that he's just returned from Korea and everything. I can assure you he has nothing to say for publication. Well, just call his room and tell him my name. Can you look me straight in the eye and swear you're a close friend of Mr. Robertson's? I can look you straight in the eye and swear. All right, we'll see. Mr. Robertson, please. Hello, I'm ever so sorry to bother you. This is the desk. 
There's a gentleman here, a Mr. Randy Stone. All right, sir. One moment. He wishes to speak to you, Mr. Stone. Thank you. Hi, Robbie. Randy, you old son of a gun. Get the heck up here. Right away, Robbie. I hope you understand, Mr. Stone. I was simply following Mr. Robertson's own orders to me. That's okay. Room 412. The elevator's to your right. It's self-service. Just punch the four button. I've been wanting to punch something. I'll settle for the four button. Hey, can I have a ride? Oh, sure. You can even drive if you want to. <laughs> All right. Face the front of the elevator. Name your floor, please. Uh, four. Just punch the four button. Ever get stuck in one of these? No. It sounds like fun. I did once. Believe me, it depends entirely on who gets stuck with you. Yeah, that was my point. I'm going to 4-2. It's a small world. She didn't fit the modest surroundings of Robbie's hideaway hotel any more than he did. She was tall and tan, the kind of tan you get at spots like Waikiki. Her blonde hair was crisp and natural. So was the mink tossed over one arm. And the brown eyes she directed at me were either soft and warm, or she was nearsighted. Unfortunately, the elevator powered its way straight to the fourth floor without mechanical failure. I'm looking for 412. I, I suppose it's down this way. Well, that's where I'm going. Oh, do you know Uncle Maynard? I know the guy in 412. Is he expecting you? He was. Oh, well, look, would you do me a big favor? He isn't expecting me. He hasn't any idea I'm anywhere near Chicago. I'm really just between trains. I called Mother, and she said Uncle Maynard was stopping here, and... And you'd like to surprise him, and you'd like me to wait while you do. Yes. Do you mind? No, no. Go ahead. I'll wait. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks. I won't be long. If I know Uncle Maynard, he'll fall right in his face when he sees me. If I know Uncle Maynard, he hasn't got a niece. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll wait. That was for sure. This doll was nobody's niece. Also for sure was that Robbie could have busted my neck if I'd horned in on that deal. I found an uncomfortable chair back by the elevator, sat at attention and smoked three cigarettes while Miss Tan and Terrific was making Robbie say uncle. I began to wish I'd brought a good book or maybe a good set of books. Just when I decided to come back a day or two later, she came beaming down the hall. I'll bet you thought I'd never come back. I had time to think a lot of things. I'm really a lot more grateful than I can say. And Uncle Maynard said the most wonderful things about you, Mr. Stone. He seems very fond of you. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a lot of charm when you get to know me. Yes, I'm sure you have. Well, goodbye, Mr. Stone. I guess I'll have to run the elevator without my co-pilot this trip. Just punch the one button. Hmm. I should have such a niece. Now, look, kid, I've said all... Oh, Randy, man, it's good to see you. Come in, fella. Some surprise, huh? Seeing your niece. Some shock, and she's not my niece. Really? Oh, you could have fooled me. You know her, don't you? No, no, and I probably won't. She saw you first. Let's forget about the doll. Tell me to sit down, buy me a drink, and... What's the matter with you? You... you don't know her? No, I don't know her. We never shared anything except the same elevator. You'll kill me. I doubt it. Uh, maybe I'd better tell you to sit down. Uh, sit down. <laughs> Thanks, I will. Now, how about that drink? Now, here. Take the bottle. Either drink it or hit me with it. I'll let you know what I decide later on. 
Randy, she's not my niece. She's also not what you think. Okay, okay. An old family friend. She's Kit Gaynor. What? The dame reporter? The same. She's fearless, lethal, covers the world, and most recently covered me. No reporter looks like that. 7,000 miles I travel from Korea to Chicago with my lips sealed. I talk to no one. I hide out in offbeat hotels. I do everything but wear a disguise so I can get to New York and give my secret report to the foundation directors. Brother, when Kit's story hits the press... You talk to this dame for publication? I will kill you. Randy, did you see her? Really look at her? Sure, I talked. I'd have slipped out the window onto the street, too, if she'd asked me to. Uncle Maynard. Oh, fine. Well, I guess it's too late to give you an exclusive for the star, isn't it? I left after a while. I planted myself at the press club bar and thought dark thoughts about Kit Gaynor. Sure, I'd heard of her. She was one of those first women. First to fly in a bomber, first in the jet, first to slip unnoticed onto a troop ship at the canal locks and go to the South Pacific. And most of all, she was the first dame reporter to make a real chump out of me. I had a drink to each of her blue ribbons. How did you find Uncle Maynard? Oh, on the ropes. How did you get in here? We got a rule about women. I'm a newspaper man. I hold press club cards all over the world, even in Chicago. I wish you were a newspaper man. I'd flatten you. I don't blame you. But when I got the scoop Robert was in town, I knew it was my last chance to catch him before he hit New York. I really ought to buy that hotel clerk a drink. If he hadn't given you that G2 routine, you couldn't have led me to Robbie. Where were you hiding? In the clerk's carnation? <laughs> You're really teed off, aren't you? There's every chance I'll live. Well, that's all I was trying to do, Stone. After all, the girls got to eat and drink. Speaking of drink, I've earned one. That was a good story I filed on, Robbie. Yeah, remind me to read it. You know something, Stone? You're sort of cute. <laughs> it's the soft light in here. It does things for me. She began having the drink she said she'd earned. Swallowed them down like there was so much fruit juice. And in between swallows, she talked. Gave me the stories behind the stories I'd read under her byline for the past eight years or so. Kit Gaynor was a lady trailblazer who got her kicks getting signatures on short snorters, talking G.I., and hopping jets for anywhere. I matched drinks with her for a while. The camera was no bigger than a cigarette case, so I was the only one who came up with the pictures and the story. Tito was furious at first, but... Stone, are you listening? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, sure. Tito was furious, and then before that... Churchill confided to you that he had nothing to offer but blood, sweat, and tears. Toil and tears. I had it a week before he gave it to Commons. Stone, are you sure you feel okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. I think maybe... Uh, I just put my head down for a minute or so. <laughs> I thought you'd like my rum, vodka, and slow gin blockbuster. One night in Seoul, Colonel Bransford had a few belts of it and began to act just like you are. Pretty soon he passed out. Whammo. Just like that. When I came to, I was cozily settled in my own apartment. I had on my pajamas and a robe Aunt Tilly had sent several Christmases ago, which I'd never worn. 
There was a steaming cup of coffee at my side, and someone was making homey sounds in the kitchen. Stone, baby, slug the coffee down. You look like the underside of a fish. You'll turn my head with talk like that. And if it turns, it'll roll off and break. Oh, drink the coffee. <sighs> Pretty good, huh? Hmm, yeah, that's not bad. There's a steak coming up. Look, kid, I don't want to press. But there are a few things that aren't exactly crystal clear in my mind. Like, uh, what am I doing in my pajamas and how did I get in them? The taxi driver was a perfect doll. Oh, he was? Your landlady was a little touchy, though. How did she get into the act? Well, we could have made a quieter entrance than we did. And I don't think she fell for my story, either. What story? That I was your niece and you had a touch of Tomaine. Oh, well, you ought to write. You mentioned something about a steak. Right away, Stone. You know, you really should feel pretty good. You've slept for hours. What have you been doing? Oh, I managed to keep busy. For one, it isn't easy to come by a steak at this hour. I had to go practically to Cicero. Uh-huh. Oh, that looks good. I don't think I'll be able to stand it if you can cook, too. Remind me to tell you how talented I am sometimes. Mmm. Oh, hey, this is good. Of course it's good. Oh, that reminds me. While I was out... Or perhaps I should say while you were out. Big joke. I bought a copy of The Star and read your column. It was good. Really good. I'd curtsy, but I'm sitting down. Column? Holy Toledo. Did I say something wrong? You said something right. I've been acting like I had the night off. I'll just clear up these dishes. Chicago Star, night desk. Randy Farley... What are you doing there this time of night? I love my work. Oh, swell. Look, Farley, I've been hung up. So your niece told me. Oh. Oh, she did. Well, We uh... could have used you, boy. That is, we could have used a reporter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll be down shortly. Don't rush on our account. The worst of it's over. The worst of what? Oh, little items like a million-dollar fire at the stockyards, a gang killing in Cicero... And count them, 12,437 eyewitness reports of a flying saucer. All that happened tonight? What did she do, plow you under? Why, I... Stone. Kid, come back here. Your niece take a powder, chump? Uh, yeah. I'll be right down. Back to Night Beat and Randy Stone. I didn't understand Kit Gaynor's departure any more than I'd understood her arrival. By the time I got to the office, I was all set to write the whole episode off as experience. Experience I didn't need. A couple of hours after Farley and I had exchanged pleasantries on the phone, I spread out the final morning editions on my desk. The stockyards fire, the gang killing, the flying saucers bit got quite a play in all the Chicago dailies. The star's coverage looked okay. But I'd picked a great night to sit on the sidelines. Well, my, but isn't our night-blooming Jasmine? Hi, Farley. Oh, too little, too late himself. Ah, looks like you did okay without me. 
You got good coverage on all the saucers. Most of the boys are pretty loyal. You didn't happen to buzz by any of those saucers last night, did you? Or weren't you flying that low? Oh, knock it off, Farley. I don't miss many times. You want to know my real beef with you, boy? It's on page one of the News Telegraph. Right there. Read it. Far East specialist tabs next red move. Man at Robinson reveals Foundation report a new communist threat. I thought this Robertson was such a buddy of yours. Well, he is. So he gives his exclusive stuff to this Kit Gaynor. What kind of a buddy is that? What are you trying to get me to say? That she's a better reporter than I am? She's a devil of a good reporter. I'll say that for her. She got the only eyewitness story on a Cicero gang killing. Eyewitness? Also page one, the news telegraph. She was supposed to be buying a steak. Huh? Ah, uh, skip it. It's a local joke. Well, I'm calling it a day. But for my dough, this Kit Gaynor's a real newspaper man, even if she is a woman. Now, nuts. Hello. Is this Mr. Randy Stone? Yeah. New York calling. One moment, please. Ready with Chicago, New York. Your party is on the line. Stone? Yeah. It's Kit. Are you teed off at me again? I can just barely remember you. Oh, I miss you, too. How's your toe, Maine? It comes and goes. Look, I'm glad you're in New York. Makes me feel more secure. Only, didn't you get there a little quick? Darndest thing, Stone. When I got back to my hotel, I ran into an old friend in the lobby. It's sort of a long story, but he just happened to be a jet pilot, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. Oh, that's good. You stay there. You'll like it. I'm airing over to Europe. The Air Force says they'll fly me. You just keep putting miles between us. I'll be the best friend you've got. I'll come back someday and hold you to that. Kid, please, do me no favors. I've got a job, just barely. Now, you go out and reconquer the world, only leave Chicago to me, huh? You're a funny guy, Stone. And I miss you. I really do. <laughs> Goodbye, Kit. I'll be reading you. Don't forget me, Stone. <laughs> I had a fat chance of forgetting her. Night and day, at home, at the office, at the press club, every move I made, she covered. One particular overseas operator and I became old friends. London, England, calling Mr. Randy Stone. Yeah? Elizabeth and Philip are a couple of dolls, and they're so in love. Calling Mr. Randy Stone. Paris? Nobody else in Paris dreams of Chicago. I'm staying on the left bank. Picasso's really divine. Do you ever think about me, Stone? Rome, Italy. Calling Mr. Randy Stone. Oh, this gal gets around. I warn you, Stone, if you're fiddling while I'm away, I'll really burn. Berlin calling. Geneva, Switzerland calling. In between times, I kept track of her with headlines like this. Ridgeway's in shape for shape, a Kit Gaynor exclusive. Tito talks exclusively to Kit Gaynor. Pope plugs for peace, a Kit Gaynor exclusive. No, I didn't forget her. And after a while, I didn't even try. At first, I was amused, then amazed. And finally, I began to think it was a good idea for her to show up in Chicago again. And she began to think so, too. 
I'm coming home, Stone. Hi, Kit. Oh, I didn't really think you'd be here. Honest to Pete, I didn't. I didn't think I'd be here. And roses. Oh, Stone, baby, you brought me roses. Yeah. I didn't think I'd do that either. Did you miss me? I don't know. Look, don't plan on anything. I just happened by an old flower lady. She needed dough. And besides... Stone, I'm trembling like a schoolgirl. Well, I don't have to work tonight. I... I told Farley that <laughs> my uh, niece was in town. And, uh... Don't look at me like that. I'll probably ask you. Go on, Stone. Please ask me. Well, that look of yours... Is it really that soft and warm? Or are you nearsighted? And, of course, the first thing Tito did was to give my cigarette case a going over to be sure it wasn't another camera. Yeah, that, that get-up of yours, that dress, that from Paris? The only one I could afford. I uh, dropped most of my take making transatlantic calls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did, didn't you? I got a money-back guarantee on the dress. The designer said, if it does not drive your lover mad, I will, uh, how you say, refund your money. <laughs> well, I, I can't tell, Stone. Do I get my money back? Uh, I'll let you know. Maybe I could work a trade deal with him. This creation for some house dresses in a going-away suit. Or should we just dance or something? Let's just sit here and, and talk about your trip. The trip was wonderful, and it's over. I'm glad it's over. Oh, uh, you'll be off again soon. I'll put dough on it. I doubt it. it it's sort of like the itch stone. When I get it, I've got to get up and move. But I think I'm cured this time. I bucketed all over the world because there wasn't anything or anyone to keep me at home. Maybe, uh... Maybe we better dance or something. I'm going to be around, Stone. And you're going to know it. But she was around, and I knew it. After a week or so, I didn't figure her too well. Or maybe it was me I didn't figure too well. Kit was giving me the home cooking treatment, and every time I started feeling cozy about the pipe and slippers routine, a small, still voice within me told me to take to the hills. I kept my own counsel about it, though. Outwardly, no one knew anything was up. Hey, lover boy. What's with the new suit? Oh, <laughs> well, I've had it a while. I... Just haven't worn it to the office yet. Well, la-dee-da. A nice, sincere, dark blue suit. Well, I got an appointment. A guy is coming through town. He's loaded. A very well-tailored gent. I figured I ought to look sort of shined up myself. Uh-huh. What's in that box? Oh, oh nothing. You're going to take the box to the guy, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Hey, oh, come on. Take it easy. Ah. The fella, he likes red roses, does he? Give me the flowers. Well, Taylor, gent, you've been wearing white shirts every day for a week. You got two haircuts this week. Every day, shoe shines. Also, every day, roses. I'm doing my work, aren't I? Oh, sure, sure. And if it gets any cozier, I'm switching you to the home section. (laughs) 
I carried the roses out in the open so everyone could see the kid's hotel. She was my well-tailored friend. We were supposed to have lunch together. I started to stride past the desk clerk, but he shoved a note at me through the roses. It was Kit's handwriting. Couldn't reach you by phone. Leaving flight 23, 1 p.m. Hurry, darling. Excuse me, please. Let me through, please. Uh I'm sorry. Excuse me, please. Oh, Robbie, I'll see you later. I'm trying to catch up with someone. You're too late for flight 23. Too late? Yeah, out there, just clearing the runway. Oh. Yeah, I see. That's funny. Is it? I mean the roses. She said you'd be carrying roses, but I didn't believe her. What are you doing here anyway? Last I heard, you went to New York to face the foundation director. Yeah, I faced them. They liked Kit's story so well, they almost gave me a citation. Oh, swell. Uh, where's she off to this time? Korea. Korea? Robbie, you... I didn't have a thing to do with it. The army arranged it. I, I just ran into Kit here at the airport. She said the whole thing came up in a hurry. Yeah, things do with her. Uh, she's a wonderful girl, isn't she? Yeah, I guess that's what she is. Well, I better head back to town. Can I give you a lift? No, no thanks. I'm waiting for a flight out. To Korea? I'll end up there after a while. But don't worry. I can't give you any trouble, I'm sorry to say. Oh? Kit left a message for you. I believe her exact words were... <clears throat> I love you, Stone, but I got the itch again. She said you'd understand. Yeah, I understand. Well, thanks, Robbie. Oh, here. You win the roses. I made straight for the press club and loaded up for a long summer and a cold winter. And this time, although I didn't wake up at home in my robe and pajamas, I sure had me a touch of toming. Of course, I'm getting better all the time. What the heck, I wasn't cut out for sitting and rocking. I never even think about Kit much, except once in a while when the telephone rings and an overseas operator announces one of the world's capitals. And then I know I got a jet by the rudder all over again. Hmm. But that's strictly off the record. You can't print a word of it. Copy, boy. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's transcribed story was written by Kathleen Height with music by Frank Worth. The part of Kit was played by Joan Banks. Others featured were Jay Novello, Marvin Miller, and Joe Gilbert. Listen next week at this time, and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. From the eve of Independence Day in 1952, an episode of Night Beat, written by Kathleen Height and starring the real-life married couple of Frank Lovejoy and Joan Banks, 
Both of them were steadily working performers in old-time radio, movies, and TV into the 1960s. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Continuing our look at women writers, and our listen to them, we should note that for centuries, some of the greatest writers of terror and horror stories have been women— Think of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein or Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Another name on that list is that of Lucille Fletcher. As the actor, director, and producer Orson Welles is about to remind us, Ms. Fletcher authored one of the finest of all thrillers, Sorry Wrong Number, a radio play that she later adapted for the movies, turning it into a classic starring Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster. Lucille Fletcher's other famous bit of Grand Guignol was another radio play, and it was also adapted for television by Rod Serling as part of the first season of his series, The Twilight Zone. The story's called The Hitchhiker, and it was performed on the radio several times in the 1940s, never more expressively than in the production we're about to hear. It was a time when gas station attendants would fill up your tank for you, and long-distance calls required operator assistance and fistfuls of dimes, nickels, and quarters to drop in a payphone. The sound effect of those coins helps to heighten the suspense in this story, as does the remarkable vocal performance of Mr. Wells. He has a dynamic range that goes from the barest whisper to a desperate shout. From the summer solstice of 1946, and with a score by Lucille Fletcher's then-husband, Bernard Herman, it's Ms. Fletcher's The Hitchhiker, starring Orson Welles from CBS's Mercury Summer Theater. Good evening. This is Orson Welles, your producer of a special series of broadcasts presented by the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon, the Mercury Summer Theater of the Air. <laughs> Mr. Wells. We of the Mercury reckon that a story doesn't have to appeal to the heart, it can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warm, sometimes you want your spine to tingle. Well, the tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to a classic among radio thrillers. Its author is one of the most gifted of all the writers who've ever worked for this medium, Lucille Fletcher, who wrote the greatest single radio script ever written. Sorry, wrong number. The title of this, her terrifying little tale of Gru for this evening, is another spine tingler by name, The Hitchhiker. I am in an auto camp on Route 66, just west of Gallup, New Mexico. If I tell it, Maybe it'll help me. It'll keep me from going crazy. But I must tell this quickly. I'm not crazy now. I feel perfectly well. Perfectly well. Except that I'm running a slight temperature. My name is Ronald Adams. I'm 36 years of age, unmarried, tall, dark, with a black mustache. I drive a 1940 Ford V8, license number 6V7989. I was born in Brooklyn. All this I know. I know that I'm at this moment perfectly sane that it is not me who's gone mad, but something else, something utterly beyond my control. But I must speak quickly. 
Any moment, the link with life may break. This may be the last thing I ever tell on Earth. The last night I ever see the stars. Six days ago, I left Brooklyn to drive to California. Goodbye, son. Good luck to you, my boy. Goodbye, mother. Here, give me a kiss, and then I'll go. I'll come out with you to the car. <laughs> oh, it's raining. Stay here at the door. Oh. Hey, what's this, tears? Oh, it's just the trip, Ronald. I wish you weren't driving. Oh, mother, there you go again. People do it every day. I know, but you'll be careful, won't you? Promise me you'll be extra careful. Don't fall asleep or drive fast or pick up any strangers now, on the road. Strangers? Don't you worry. There isn't anything going to happen. It's just eight days of perfectly simple driving on smooth, decent, civilized roads with a hot dog or a hamburger stand every ten miles. in excellent spirits. Drive ahead. Even the loneliness seemed like a lark. But I reckoned without him. Crossing Brooklyn Bridge that morning in the rain, I saw a man leaning against the cables. He seemed to be waiting for a lift. There were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. He was carrying a cheap overnight bag in one hand. He was thin, nondescript, with a cap pulled down over his eyes. He stepped off the walk, and if I hadn't swerved... If I hadn't swerved, I'd have hit him. I almost did. Almost did hit him. Now, I would have forgotten him completely, except that just an hour later, while crossing the Pulaski Skyway over the Jersey Flats, I saw him again. At least he looked like the same person. He was standing now with one thumb, pointing west. I couldn't figure out how he'd got there, but I thought maybe one of those fast trucks had picked him up, beat me to the skyway, and let him off. I didn't stop for him. Then, late that night, I saw him again. It was on the new Pennsylvania turnpike between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. It's... 265 miles long with a very high speed limit. I was just slowing down for one of the tunnels when I saw him standing under an arc light by the side of the road. I could see him quite distinctly. The bag, the cap, even the spots of fresh rain spattered over his shoulders. He hailed me this time. stepped on the gas like a shot. That's lonely country through the Alleghenies, and I had no intention of stopping. Besides, the coincidences, or whatever it was, gave me the willies. I stopped at the next gas station. Yes, sir. Fill her up, will you? Check your oil? No, thanks. Nice night, isn't it? Yes. It, it uh, hasn't been raining here lately, has it? Not a drop of rain all week. Oh, no? I... I suppose that hasn't done your business any harm. Well, people drive through here all kinds of weather. Mostly business, though. Ain't many pleasure cars out in the turnpike this season of the year. I guess not. What about hitchhikers? <laughs> hitchhikers here? Why, what's the matter? Don't you ever see any? A guy would be a fool to start out to hitchhike on this road. Look at it. Then you never see anybody? No. Nope. Maybe they get a lift before the turnpike starts. I mean, you know, just before the toll house. But then it's a mighty long ride. Most cars wouldn't pick up a guy for that long a ride. 
This is pretty lonesome country here, mountains and woods. Yeah. You ain't seen nobody like that, have you? Oh, no, no. It's it's just a <laughs> technical question. Oh, I see. Well, uh, that'll be $1.49 with the tax. The thing gradually passed from my mind as coincidence. I had a good night's sleep in Pittsburgh. I didn't think about the man all next day until just outside of Zanesville, Ohio. I saw him again. It was a bright, sunshiny afternoon. The peaceful Ohio fields, brown with the autumn stubble, lay dreaming in the golden light. I was driving slowly, drinking it in, when the road suddenly ended in a detour. In front of the barrier, he was standing. Let me explain about his appearance before I go on. I repeat... There was nothing sinister about him. He was as drab as a mud fence. Nor was his attitude menacing. He merely stood there, waiting, almost drooping a little, the cheap overnight bag in his hand. He looked... He looked as though he'd been waiting there for hours. And he hailed me. He started to walk forward. Hello! Hello! I'd stop the car, of course, for the detour. For a few minutes, I couldn't seem to find the new road. I realized he must be thinking that I'd stop for him. Hello! No, oh, I'm... Not just now, I, I'm sorry. Going to California? No, no, not today. The other way, I, I'm going to New York. Sorry. Sorry! After I got the car back onto the road again, I felt like a fool. Yet the thought of picking him up, of having him sit beside me, was somehow unbearable. Yet at the same time, I felt more than ever unspeakably alone. Hour after hour went by. The fields, the towns ticked off one by one. The lights changed. I knew now that I was going to see him again. And though I dreaded the sight, I, I caught myself searching the side of the road, waiting for him to appear. Yep. What is it? What you want? You sell sandwiches and pop here, don't you? Yep, we do. In the daytime... But it closed up for the night. I know, but I, I was wondering if, if you could possibly may have a cup of coffee. Black coffee. Not at this time of night, mister. My wife's a cook and she's in bed. Well, now, uh, l listen, ju just a minute ago, there was a man standing here, right right beside here, and he was a suspicious-looking man. Henry? Who is it, Henry? It's nobody, Mother. She's a fan of things she wants a cup of coffee. Now, Go back into bed. I, I don't mean to disturb you, but you see, <laughs> I was driving along when I just happened to look, and... There he was. What was he doing? Nothing. You've been hitting a bottle. That's, that's what's the matter with you. You got nothing better to do than wake decent folk out of their hard-earned sleep. Now get going. Go on. But he, he, he looked as though he was going to rob you. I ain't got nothing in this stand to lose. Down your way before I call out chair folks. Uh -huh. 
got into the car again and drove on slowly. I was beginning to hate the car. If I could have found a place to stop to rest a little, but... I was in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri now. Few resort places there were closed. I had seen him at that roadside stand. I knew I'd see him again. Maybe at the next turn of the road. I knew that when I saw him next, I'd run him down. But I didn't see him again until late the next afternoon. I'd stopped the car at a sleepy little junction just across the border into Oklahoma. Let a train pass by when he appeared across the tracks. He was leaning against a telephone pole. It was a perfectly airless, dry day. The red clay of Oklahoma was baking under the southwestern sun. Yet there were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. I couldn't stand that. Without thinking blindly, I started the car across the tracks. He didn't even look up at me. He was staring at the ground. I stepped on the gas hard, veering the wheel sharply toward him. I could hear the train in the distance now, but I didn't care. Then something went wrong with the car. It, it stalled right on the tracks. The train was coming closer. I could hear its bell. I heard its cry, its whistle crying. Still, he stood there. Now I knew that he was beckoning. Beckoning me to my death. After that, I knew I had to do something. I didn't know who this man was or what he wanted of me. I only knew that from now on, I mustn't let myself be alone on the road for one minute. Hello there. Hello. Like a ride? What do you think? How far you go? Amar Amarillo. I'll, I'll, I'll take you to Amarillo. Amarillo, Texas? Yeah, I'll drive you there. Gee. Hop here. Mind if I take off my shoes? My dog's killing me. No, go right ahead. Oh, gee, what a break this is. Swell car and decent guy driving all the way to Amarillo. All I've been getting so far is trucks. You hitchhike much? Sure. Only it's tough sometimes in these great open spaces to get the break. Yeah, I think it would be, but I'll bet, though, you could, if, if, you, if you got a good pickup in a fast car, you could get to places faster than, well, say, another person in another car. I don't get you. Well, you, you take me, for instance. Suppose I'm driving across the country at a nice steady clip of about 45 miles an hour. Couldn't a girl like you just standing beside the road, waiting for lifts, 
beat me to town after town, provided she got picked up every time in a car that was doing 65 or 70 miles an hour? I don't know. Maybe she could, maybe she couldn't. What difference does it make? Oh, no difference. It's just a crazy idea I had sitting here in the car. Oh, imagine spending your time in a swell car thinking of things like that. What would you do instead? What would I do if I was a good-looking fellow like yourself? I'd just enjoy myself every minute of the time. I'd sit back and relax. If I saw a good-looking girl along the side of the road... Hey! Did you see him, too? See who? That man standing beside the barbed wire fence. I didn't see anybody. Right there. There was nothing, just a barbed wire fence. What did you think he was doing trying to run into that barbed wire fence? There was a man there, I tell you. A, A thin, gray man with an overnight bag in his hand. I was trying to run him down. Run him down? You mean kill him? I'm... I'm trying to get rid of him. Or... At least prove that he's real. But you, you say you didn't see him back there. You sure? I didn't see a soul. As far as that's Well, watch for him. Watch for him the next time. And keep watching. Keep your eyes peeled on the road. He'll turn up again. Maybe any minute now. There! Look there! <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Did you see him that time? Did you see him? No, I didn't see him that time. And personally, mister, I don't expect never to see him. All I want to do is go on living. And I don't see how I will very long driving with you. I'm I'm sorry. I I don't know what came over me. Please, don't go. So if you'll excuse me, Please, you can't go. Listen, how'd you like to go to California? I'll drive you all the way to California. Pink elephants all the way? No, thanks. Listen, please, just one minute. You know what I think you need, big boy? Not a girlfriend. Just a good dose of sleep. There, I cut it now. No. No, you can't go. Leave your hands off of me, do you hear? Leave your hands off. Come back here, please. Come back. She ran from me. As if I was some kind of monster. A few minutes later, I saw a passing truck pick her up. I knew then that I was utterly alone. I was in the heart of the great Texas prairies. There wasn't a car on the road after the truck went by. Trying to figure out what to do, how to get a hold of myself. If I could find a place to rest, or even if I could sleep right here in the car. Just a few hours and sleep. Just along the side of the road. I was getting my winter overcoat out of the back seat to use as a blanket. Just as a blanket. When I saw him coming toward me. Coming toward me. Emerging from the herd of moving steer. I didn't wait for him to come any closer. Maybe. Maybe I should have spoken to him then. Fought it out then and there for. Now he began to be everywhere. Whenever I stopped, even for a minute, for gas, for oil, for a drink, a pop, a cup of coffee, a sandwich, he was there. I saw him standing outside the auto camp in Amarillo that night when I dared to slow down. He was standing near the drinking fountain, a little camping spot just inside the border of New Mexico. He was waiting for me outside the Navajo reservation where I stopped to check my tires. I saw him in Albuquerque, where I bought ten gallons of gas. I was afraid now. Afraid to stop. I 
began to drive faster and faster. I was in... in lunar landscape now. The great arid Mesa country of New Mexico. I drove through it with the indifference of a fly crawling over the face of the moon. And now he didn't even wait for me to stop unless I drove at 85 miles an hour over those endless roads. He waited for me at every other mile. I'd see his figure. Shadowless. Flitting before me. Still in its same attitude. Over the cold and lifeless ground. Flitting over dried up rivers. Over broken stones cast up by old glacial upheavals. Flitting in the pure and cloudless air. and asked if there was a telephone. I, I had the feeling that if I could speak to somebody familiar, somebody that I loved, I could pull myself together. Number, please. Long distance. Thank you. This is long distance. I'd like to put in a call to my home to Brooklyn, New York. <clears throat> I'm Ronald Adams. The number is Beechwood 9970. Thank you. Thank you. What is your number? My number? It's, it's, it's 312. Albuquerque. New York for Gallup. New York. Gallup, New Mexico, calling Beachwood 9970. I'd read somewhere that love could banish demons. It was in the middle of the morning. I knew Mother'd be home. I pictured her tall, white head in her crisp house dress going about her tasks. It would be enough, I thought, just to hear the even calmness of her voice. Will you please deposit $3.85 for the first three minutes? When you have deposited a dollar and a half, will you wait until I have collected the money? Another dollar and a half.
Will you please deposit the remaining 85 cents? Ready with Brooklyn. Go ahead, please. Hello? Mrs. Adams' residence. Hello. Hello, Mother? This is Mrs. Adams' residence. Who is it you wish to speak to, what? please? Who is this? This is Mrs. Whitney. Mrs. Whitney? I, I don't know any Mrs. Whitney. Is this Beechwood 9970? Yes. Where's my mother? Where's Mrs. Adams? The hospital? Yes. Who is this calling, please? Is it a member of the family? What's she in the hospital for? She's been prostrated for five days. A nervous breakdown. Nervous. Who is this calling? Nervous breakdown. My mother is nervous. It's all taken place since the death of her oldest son, Ronald. Since the death of her oldest son, Ronald? Hey, what is this? What number is this? deserted auto camp in Gallup, New Mexico. And so I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of myself. Otherwise, otherwise I'll go crazy. Outside, it is night. The vast, soulless night of New Mexico. A million stars are in the sky. Ahead of me stretch a thousand miles of empty mesa and mountains, prairies, desert. Somewhere among them, he is waiting for me. Somewhere. Somewhere I shall know week, ladies and gentlemen, we bring to your radio another Mercury favorite. We hope a favorite of yours. You've asked for it many times. We've performed it many times. Jane Eyre. And Jane will be played by a Mercury actress who was heard tonight and has been heard so often on our shows. One of the most gifted people we know in our business, Miss Alice Frost. Jane Eyre, then, with Alice Frost and your obedient servant, that's the same time next week, same station, 
please join us. Until then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, for all of us on the Mercury Theater, including Bernard Herman, who wrote and conducted the music on this program, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Hitchhiker, a tale of the weird and terrifying from Orson Welles's The Mercury Summer Theater and from the typewriter of Lucille Fletcher as it was broadcast on June 21, 1946. This is the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. To continue our observance of Women's History Month, we're going to stick with Lucille Fletcher now. She was one of the greats of old-time radio, and you'll get a real idea of her range as a writer from a play called My Client Curly. It takes us far from the world of the hitchhiker into the realm of satire, and somewhat topical satire at that, with references that a radio audience in 1940 would have well understood an energetic dance step called Truckin', the great tap dancer Bill Robinson, the novel composer and bandleader Raymond Scott, whose music we'll hear, filmmaker Walt Disney and his animated cartoon Silly Symphonies, the great photographer Margaret Burke White, the seminal choreographer and dancer Martha Graham, the controversial public figure known as Mr. New York, Grover Whalen, who ran the 1939 World's Fair, the author William Saroyan, and First Lady and newspaper columnist Eleanor Roosevelt. But wait, there's more. Overseeing the whole production was the masterful Norman Corwin, and featured in the cast is the wonderful voice actor Arnold Stang. From March 7, 1940, and CBS, it's Lucille Fletcher's My Client Curly from the Columbia Workshop. Ladies and gentlemen, in the following play, any similarity to caterpillars, living or dead, is purely coincidental. The Columbia Workshop presents My Client Curly, a new radio play by Norman Corwin, based upon a short story by Lucille Fletcher Herman. There are some things a man doesn't like to talk about because they're... Well, I'll just tell this story about my client, Curly, and then I'll go back to the agent business and try to forget it. But if I should get a lump in my throat while I'm telling it, I hope you'll understand because this whole thing was so recent, I still feel pretty upset about it. To make a long story short... I'm out walking one day in the suburbs where I live when my attention is attracted by two kids sitting on the side of the road. And one of them is playing a harmonica. They're bent over watching something on the ground, and I, being curious, go over to see what it is. Hiya, boys. What you got there? Oh, we got a trained caterpillar. Yeah, what's trained about it? He dances. <laughs> I don't believe he it. He sure does. Give us an echo and we'll show you. 
Oh, a racket, huh? All right, I'm a sucker. Here's two nickels. Ah, thanks, mister. Okay, place this. Mm-hmm. Wow. What do you know? Now stop. I'll be done. Stops right when you do. Oh, sure. That's the way Stinky trained him. Didn't you, Stinky? Oh, it was nothing. Uh, play some more, Stinky. <laughs> Lies right down when you're finished. Sure, he's talented, ain't he? Come on up on my finger, Curly. That's the boy. Say, does Curly dance to any kind of music? Nope. Only yes, sir, that's my baby. You mean to tell me he only dances to one tune? That's right. I tried lots more, but I guess he only likes that one. Well, why is that, do you suppose? Well, I know, because he's got a real musical ear. I guess that's what those two branches are in his head, huh? Musical ears. No, that's his antenna. Antenna? <laughs> he ain't no radio set. And then I good one. Say. Uh, what? I wonder if he's got any snake blood in him. You know, there are some snakes that dance. No kidding. Sure. Here, let me take your harmonica a minute. Sure, here. Curly may be related to one of them Asiatic snakes or something. Let me play it a minute. No, won't budge. I guess it's an American caterpillar, all right. Oh, sure. Look, fellas, I'll make you a proposition. How would you like to sell Curly? Uh, how much? Hey, wait a minute. I own Curly, and I don't want to sell him. Well, why not, Stinky? Well, because I... Because. You know why he don't want to sell? Why? On account of he's stuck. Oh, on shut him. up, Fatso. You mean you like Curly so much you don't want to part with him? I I just don't want to sell him, that's all. Even for a dollar. Not even for two dollars. Well, of course, I don't think anybody'd ever offer you that much money. I don't care. He's my pet, and I want to keep him. Trained him from a pup. Now, look, kiddo. I think you're a very bright and sensitive boy. And because of that, I'm going to make you an immediate cash payment of $5 for Curly. Five bucks? Holy mackerel, what do you say, Stinky, huh? Gosh, I, I don't know. Take it, I'm telling you. Take it. Now you can buy your bike. Sure is a lot of money, but you see, I, I like Curly, and I, I guess Curly likes me, too. And when we're alone, I talk to him, and he understands me. Curly likes to have me around. He's very intelligent, even though he don't look so smart. Oh, he looks smart, all right. That's all my old man or nobody else can't never get him to move. He won't do nothing when they ask him. He lays down, just like I spite almost. You know, if somebody took him away from me, Curly would die. You think so? Sure. He's only human, ain't he? He'd absolutely die. Listen to me, Stinky. I'm going to talk to you man to man. This caterpillar you got is very valuable. He's worth a lot of money. Way more than $5, maybe. No kidding. Now, this is what we're going to do. Stinky, you're going to stay with Curly, and I'm going to manage both of you. Curly will be my client. Oh, what's that mean? What's a client? Well, you wouldn't understand very well. That's something I'll have to explain to your parents, because i got to get their signatures on a long-term contract with options. You're a minor under the law, you see. I didn't do anything wrong, did I? That was how it began. I get Curly under my management and take him and Stinky with me. The first thing I do is start out after some publicity, and boy, do those reporters eat it up. Front page with pictures. 
Pictures of Curly. Pictures of Stinky. Pictures of me. Pictures of my client dancing on a leaf. Curling around the mayor's finger. Climbing up a pretty model's leg. Sitting in a tiny box at the opera. And headlines. Headlines like this in the Times. Swing caterpillar sways to strains of, yes, sir, that's my baby. Fred Astaire of Insect World demonstrates almost human sense of rhythm. The Post. Early in custody of Stinky. Young Spengali of Caterpillars. The Herald Tribune. Insect phenomenon learned to truck and truck garden manager of Earth. The World Telegram. The curly crawl becomes new national dance sensation. The Daily News. Bug cuts rug. Story on page two. And sure enough, with all that publicity, things really begin happening. First, Bill Robinson introduces the curly capers at the Cotton Club. Uh-huh. Couple City. Then Raymond Scott writes a song called The Caterpillar Creek. Half a dozen agencies bid for the rights to syndicate a comic strip. 429 papers, five days a week, making a grand total. Other companies pay me royalties for curly balloons and spaghetti and dolls and toys and picture books and decorations on the outside of drinking glasses. Ma, buy me the glass with Curly's picture on it. And to make a long story short, I get a vaudeville offer. The money begins to roll in. I hire an expensive suite and a secretary. Curly Enterprises, good afternoon. I buy Stinky a bike and a new suit of clothes. Gee, thanks. The publicity begins to pile up. And at the height of the excitement, I get a wire from Hollywood. Offer 10000 for curly appearance and feature-length cartoons. Stop. Propose using live character for first time among cartoon characters. Stop. Appreciate immediate answer. Would like to rush story and production. Cordially, Walt Disney. Oh, oh uh, Miss Nielsen. Yes? Yeah. Take a wire to Walt Disney, Hollywood, California. Yes, sir. Curly price, 100000 Is that all? You think I should ask for more? No, I mean, is there any more to the wire? Just a moment, please. Time magazine on the line. Will you take it on the table phone? Oh, sure. All right. Hello? Yeah, this is him. Well, you see... Yeah. Uh-huh. No, I discovered him in a boy's possession. That's right. No. Curly no. Enterprises? Yeah, sure. Well, he's busy on another no, line. No, he hasn't yet. Who? Right. Oh, yes. Oh, I well, keep right here. He wanted here. me to tell you to order a special airmail daily shipment of willow leaves from yeah. Florida. What? Uh, wait a minute, no, will you? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Curly Enterprises. Yes. Uh, just a second, please. Oh, I'm just trying to get him in a minute. Yeah. Hello. Curly Enterprises. Yeah. No, yes. That's well, right. just a minute. Please. Right. Wait, just a second. No, Curly right. Enterprises. Probably yes. not for another week. Or two. You better hire more secretaries. Well, things are going along in great shape, and Curly's making us a bundle of dough, when all of a sudden I get three visitors I didn't figure on. We have been reading about your wonderful specimen in the papers, and we have come to ask permission to examine it. Examine it? What for? We are lepidopterists. Lepidopterists? But Curly's a caterpillar, not a leopard. Ah, no, 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 my dear man. Lepidoptery is a branch of entomology dealing with the insect order of which you're, uh, uh, shall we say, a client is a member. Well, I'm sure Curly don't want to be examined by nobody. Oh, now, come, come, Miss, uh, 
this caterpillar is as remarkable as the newspapers say, then you, you certainly owe science the courtesy of permitting an examination. Exactly. Yes, it would be nothing short of criminal to withhold such knowledge from science. Well, you want to put it that way. It will take no more than two minutes. I suppose it's all right. Uh, come with me, please. Hello, Stinky. Hello. This is Master Stinky, gentlemen, discoverer and trainer of my client. He guards Curly all the time. Well, there he is in that box. Uh, please be careful how you handle him. Ah, here you are. Oh, <laughs> my muscular fellow, isn't he? Normal mandible, unusually uh, conspicuous, uh, first uh, maxillae. Mm, uh, I say, watch out there, Doctor. He's trying to bite you. Huh? Never been attacked by a caterpillar before. Astounding. Ooh. Oh, my. You see here, Doctor. Uh, just notice this remarkable elongation of the abdominal feature. Yes, yes, quite. Uh, and doesn't this feature make you think of the Aglaze Antiope? Incredible. Look here. Isn't this remarkable? Why, I've never seen such a cell, except in the Melanardia Gagalathea. And the chintonization. No kidding. Well, sir, congratulations. This is a remarkable specimen, even before we test its reactions to musical stimuli. Oh, gosh, thanks. It is of the ordinary genus Papilio Rutilus, mind you, but it has the most extraordinary feature. Thanks very much. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we feel that the specimen would be much more... Uh, valuable to society if you, instead of exhibiting it for commercial purposes, were to uh, loan or uh, donate it to the Museum of Natural History, where it could be further studied by the leading entomologists of the world. Oh, but I... Yes, uh... when it dies, we can dissect no, it. No, no, they're not going to take him away. Don't let him take Curly. Please, Curly, got to stay my me. boy. We're not going to hurt him. Oh, An insect me. like this occurs probably once in a million years. Surely for the sake of a few dollars... You're not going to risk injuring him by overwork? Are you accusing me of sacrificing Curly's health for profit? Why, that's ridiculous. Curly is... Yes, come in. Just another wire from the phone. Who's it? 20,000. 20? Tell him 100,000 or nothing. Well, the papers get hold of the Lepidoptera story, and there's another pile of publicity. It gets to be a moral issue. With preachers delivering sermons and all like that. I'm attacked editorially for exploiting caterpillar labor. And in a nation faced by pressing legislative issues, striving to keep clear of foreign entanglements, and confronted on every hand by economic problems, what is it that occupies the concentration of millions from coast to coast? A caterpillar. And why is this? Because of the shameless exploitation of a little unsuspecting boy and a harmless insect by a mercenary agent who has turned to his own greedy personal advantage a natural phenomenon which belongs nowhere else but in a museum. The press at large is to be condemned for encouraging this Simon Legree, this pagan, this veritable slave trader to continue his career of rank exhibitionism on a bank. But on the other hand, I'm defended as an individualist who refuses to submit to regimentation. A man owns a clever bug. He has the right to manage that bug. There is no question about his status as manager of that bug. Yes, he is asked to release his client for scientific purposes. He refuses. 
He has a right to refuse. Nobody denies that right. Yet, in certain quarters of the press, he is attacked. His character is blurred. Aspersions attacked upon him. He is looked upon as a pariah, as a philistine. Indeed, one of our esteemed contemporaries compared him with Simon Legree and Fagin. Merely because he insists upon his constitutional guarantee. We say it is consoling to find a man in this day of reckless encroachment upon the individual who will stand up and fight for his rights. We wish him well. We stand behind him four square, our feet firmly implanted in the soil from which his bug has sprung to support his defiance of those who... The American Legion and the daughters of the American Revolution send Curly an engraved silver-plated twig and a miniature flag to put on top of his box. The Maharaja of Lahore sends him some willow leaves from the sacred willow trees of the temple. See, look, a package from a place named Lakeshore with a a lot of funny-looking stamps. Lahore, not Lakeshore. Can I have the stamps? Yeah, here you are. I signed Curly up for a super special movie short, and it sweeps the box offices of the country in spite of terrible weather, including blizzards and rainstorms. Variety reports, Liz and Driz fail to fizzle biz as bug wows VO from NY to L.A. Life magazine runs a Margaret Burke White picture of Curly on the cover with the caption, Curly. CBS does a pickup direct from Curly's box. Bring in the sound of Curly eating dinner. This is Jack Nell speaking to you from the headquarters of Curly Enterprises, where we have a microphone buried among willow leaves to pick up the sound of the world's leading insect danciers busy eating dinner. The New Yorker comes out with a cartoon showing Martha Graham nibbling willow leaves. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did you see this cartoon in the New Yorker? Let me see. Well, what's funny about that? Well, for heaven's sake, don't you get the point? No. Well, don't you know who Martha Graham is? Yes. Well, you know who Curly is, of course. The caterpillar. Yes. Well, now, you see, Curly... Walt Disney raises his bid to 50000 but I still hold out for 100000 Grover Whalen invites Curly to do an English country dance on the cover of the Magna Carta at the World's Fair. And to make a long story short, everything's gone along hunky-dory until one day some more public-spirited guys get a hold of Curly. Only this time they're not scientists, but musicians. And therefore, in the interests of music, we of the committee feel that you would be rendering an invaluable service to musical knowledge if you'd permit us to test the effect of classical music on your class. But what good will that do anybody? Why, it may open up an entirely new field of psychology in relation to music. The world knows very little about the musical instincts of animals and nothing at all about insects. But you're wasting your time. Curly dances to only one tune. Have you tried other tunes? Why, sure. Tell them what you played, Stinky. I played it, uh, Ain't Gonna Rain No More. Yep. Uh, my country kids are these. Uh-huh. Uh, let me see, the, uh, beer ball poker. That's right. Uh, shine on harvest moon. Uh-huh. Uh, the music goes round ah, and round. Ah, but no classical music. Sure we did. I myself played Our Sweet Mystery of Life by Victor Herbert. But you haven't tried any symphonies, have you? Well, Disney's trying to get us for a silly symphony right now, as late as... No, 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 was... no, I'm afraid you don't understand. Let me explain what we propose to do. We get Curly in a studio with an orchestra and go through a careful series of tests using selected symphonic music of dance-like tempi. Now, by the choice of representative work... All right, all right. I know you're tired, gentlemen. We've now been through 67 pieces already, but 
Let's try a few more, and then we'll quit till tomorrow. Hasn't the caterpillar moved at all? No, so far he hasn't budged once. But maybe we'll get him with the habanero from Carmen. Stop, stop, stop. All right, let's try number uh, 69, Rosamunda Ballet. Stop, stop. Next, number 70, Strauss Perpetua Mobile. days this went on, and finally after the 202nd try, something happened that really made the papers sit up and take notice all over again. The amalgamated press next day carried this story. Curly, the Terpsichorean caterpillar, today staggered scientist and musician when he suddenly went into a stately dance upon hearing the second movement of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. The movement, marked Allegretto Scherzando, was the 203rd musical sampling performed in an effort to determine whether the super caterpillar could or would dance to anything besides the song, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. The insect further astonished observers by dancing in a contrapuntal manner to an arrangement of melodies from both the song and the movement. Scientists are unable to explain the phenomena. The management of the caterpillar announced, meanwhile, that Curly will appear as the lead in a ballet entitled Extravaganza for Insects Only by William Saroyan, and that Curly will also be seen soon in a dance recital at Carnegie Hall. Well, then things really begin to break for us. Mrs. Roosevelt writes about it in her column, My Day. It is not often that a creature smaller than one's little finger can completely captivate the imagination of millions. Yet such is the remarkable truth about the caterpillar named Curly. And only today I was telling the president that it has been many years... There's talk among stamp collectors of issuing a special Curly stamp. And since the Curly stamp would be the only insect subject in existence... Its value to philately would naturally assume... Scientific societies offer to investigate Curly's genius. And would you believe that the annual convention of the American Lepidoptological and Entomological Academy even invites Stinky to lecture before it? Um, so I, I said to my mother, Ma, can I have a penny? I want to buy a piece of candy. So, uh, my, my mother says yes, and she, she gives me the candy. Uh, uh, so, uh, on the way to the store... I, uh, I see a caterpillar, and uh, he's uh, crossing the road, so, uh, so I, I stopped to watch it, see? And uh, then I, I picked it up, and uh, then I, I started to whistle a song, and it, uh, it happened to be, yes, sir, that's my baby. Uh, and all this time, the money keeps coming in. We're getting along fine, although it costs a lot to keep up my expensive offices and staff of secretaries. But I'm figuring on getting the big dough, the 100000 from Disney, and then retiring, see? Well, to make a long story short, there are a couple of exchanges of telegrams and phone calls with me holding out for my price. And then one night, Disney wires... We'll meet your price of 100000 Please fly out with Curly next plane. Wow, am I excited. I'd rush into the next room where Stinky and Curly are sleeping. Stinky! Wake up! 
We're oh. rich. We're practically millionaires. Oh, oh, come on, get your clothes oh. on. Hurry. You're going to take a long airplane ride with me and Curly. Huh? And boy, I'm going to buy Curly the juiciest willow leaf he ever ate in his life. Oh, now I'm going to I'm gonna tell the news to Curly. Here you are, little boy. Here you Where is he? Why ain't he in his box? Where's Curly? Curly! I put him to bed, all right? Ain't he in his box? Quick! Look all around the room. Curly! Under the cot. Under the bed. On the wall. Everywhere. And be careful where you walk. Okay. Hey, Curly, come back here. Curly! Why, Curly? Curly! Come on, Curly. Curly! Curly, Curly, listen! Curly! Yes, uh, that's my baby. No, sir. I, I, I don't mean baby. Yes, sir. That's my baby now. Yes, sir. That's my baby. Curly. Curly, I love you. Where are you? I don't leave A hundred thousand bucks, Curly. Yes, sir. That's my baby. Hey, hey, Stinky, here. Come here, take your flashlight and look from along the car. Ask the manager to let you look at the bottom of the elevator shaft. Meanwhile, I'll phone the police. Yes, sir. Operator. Operator. Get me police headquarters. Operator! Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Be on the lookout for a dancing caterpillar. Be on the lookout for a dancing caterpillar. C-A-T-E-R-P-I-L-L-A-R. Caterpillar. That is all. Lance, the Federal Bureau of Investigation will need a denial confirmed rumors that Curly, the $100,000 caterpillar, was kidnapped. G-men are investigating closely. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been requested by the civic authorities to make the following announcement. Whenever you hear the song, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby, unquote, will you please watch very carefully, wherever you may be, for a dancing caterpillar in your vicinity. This announcement is in reference to Curly, the famous caterpillar. The whole country searches in vain. Nobody's seen Curly. The police throw out a dragnet. Posses are formed. Radio stations play, yes, sir, that's my baby, at intervals throughout the day. And ask all listeners to be on the lookout for a dancing caterpillar. Curly fans from all over send in money for a fine curly farm. And I am privileged, as president of the fine curly club, to announce the fact that the fine curly farm has reached the impressive and staggering total of $12,385.14, with the entire South yet to be heard. <laughs> Nobody finds Curly. And now that he's gone, I begin to realize how much I love that bug. I begin to understand why it was Stinky couldn't bear to sell him to me way back in those happy days. I can't bear thinking of willow leaves. I find myself hating all birds and looking suspiciously at cats. And I take the drinking. What will it be for you, sir? A triple zombie. Drippers. Are you sure? A you... triple zombie! Yes, sir. And even Stinky tries to drink his way out of his grief. And what will it be for you, young man? A cup of coffee. And make it black. Are you sure you want... Black coffee! Yes, Meanwhile, sympathizers from all over the world, including Scandinavian countries, send me caterpillars 
hoping maybe they've found Curly and are eligible for a reward offered by the Fine Curly Club. Mister, here's another barrel of caterpillars from Australia. Well, I put it. Give it to the zoo. Which zoo, mister? Any zoo, any zoo, as long as you get it out of here. Okay, mister. Days go by. Weeks go by. I send Stinky home. Goodbye. Goodbye, Stinky. Well, at least you got a nice suit of clothes on you. And a fine automobile. And a chauffeur to drive you home in. I'd rather have Curly back again. Yeah. I know. Well, goodbye. 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 And then one day I'm sitting in my place, playing sadly on the piano with one finger, as is my wife. of a sudden, out from under the music rack, creeps Curly. Only he's changed. He's different. He's not dancing anymore. He's, he's a butterfly. Curly. Oh, Curly. You're a big boy now. It's Blooded his wings a little when I said it. And I stroked his antenna, which are now very long and beautiful. I see he's getting restless at the outdoors, where he no doubt hears the call of his mate. So I sing a farewell to him. <laughs> Blood is around my face. And then flies over to a picture of Stinky on a bureau. And then flutters back to me. And after one long look at me, he flies out of the window. Never more to come back again. Make a long story short. I sit down and I feel like crying. In fact, I do cry. Yeah. Who would ever think that a grown man would ever cry about a caterpillar? But I do. And I am ashamed to admit it. Well, that's the story of my client, You have been listening to My Client Curly, written and produced by Norman Corwin and based upon the original short story of Lucille Fletcher Herman. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Columbia Workshop and Norman Corwin's production of Lucille Fletcher's My Client Curly from the late winter of 1940 and from the big broadcast over WMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. During this Women's History Month, we've been paying a little attention to one of the dominant forms of old-time radio, the daytime dramatic serial, better known as the soap opera, or simply the soaps. They ruled daytime listening in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and they were not only targeting a female audience, 
in many cases they were created by women. And of course, because they were meant to reflect the daily concerns of their audiences, the characters at the center of them, and the actors who portrayed them, were mainly women. We're going to hear a couple of episodes right now of a soap opera that featured a professional woman struggling to balance her home life and her career, Joyce Jordan, M.D. And it was, indeed, a soap opera sponsored by a detergent. We're not sure which of the half-dozen or so actors who portrayed the title character is starring in these particular episodes, but we are sure of the woman who plays Celia in the first of the two. She's Amanda Randolph, who appeared in dozens of movies, on records, and in radio and TV shows from the 1920s to the 1960s, including starring roles on television's Beulah, and as herself in a daytime show on the pioneering Dumont TV network, making her, along with the singer and pianist Hazel Scott, one of the first two African-American women to have their own programs on network television. Much of her early work was in the servile roles that were mostly all that was available to African-American women during that time. In Joyce Jordan, M.D., for example, she appears as a kind of mother confessor to the good doctor, but never as an equal, always as a housemaid, replying, yes'm. These two episodes, from about two years apart in the series, display a stark contrast typical of the soaps. In terms of dramatic writing, there are often whole installments in which absolutely nothing happens, yet the conversations are often compelling. Then there are those occasions when there is some very dramatic action, often action that tugs at your heartstrings. You'll hear both in these two installments, the first from February 4, 1946, and then the second from July 20, 1948. They come from NBC and Joyce Jordan, M.D. Dreft, D-R-E-F-T, presents Joyce Jordan, M.D. Dreft, the amazing suds discovery that performs washing miracles no soap could ever do. Joyce Jordan, M.D. suds ever before created such a sensation among women as Draft's Miracle Suds. Yes, I mean D-R-E-F-T, Procter & Gamble's amazing suds discovery for washing silks, nylons, woolens, dishes. Think of it, Draft gives you faster, brighter, safer cleaning for all your nice things. Yes, faster, brighter, safer cleaning than any suds before in history. Take lovely lingerie, for example. Draft suds help keep my dainty underthings color fresh, gay and bright, wash after wash. That's right. You see, Draft is different from soap. It leaves no soapy deposit to dull, lovely lingerie and cause soap fading. There's no sticky film to make pretty underthings look old before their time. Yes, rich, abundant Draft suds rinse clean and clear. Well, there's never been anything like Draft. 
Not only is it marvelous for my pretty slips and blouses, but it keeps my fine woolen, stockings, and baby things beautiful as a dream. So, ladies, open this exciting new world of beauty for your own nice washables. Look for Draft in the bright green package. Draft, the amazing suds discovery that brings you faster, brighter, safer cleaning than any suds before in history. That's D-R-E-F-T, Draft. Joyce Jordan, M.D. The vital story of one woman's struggle against many odds to correct the mistakes of her early life. It is mid-afternoon in Centerfield where Joyce Jordan now lives in the old family house with her brother Paul and his wife Eloise and with Celia and Ernest. A bright, sunny winter mid-afternoon with the sun shining so clearly that it makes the remaining patches of gray snow seem white and glistening again. The kind of afternoon that refuses to worry about the approaching sunset and the night that must come. Celia and Joyce are in the roomy old kitchen of the Jordan house. And as they sit busily stringing fresh green beans for dinner, each seems reluctant to admit to troubled feelings on such a beautiful day. And yet, try as they may, the subject which is on their minds comes out. Uh, Celia, where's Eloise? I don't know. Most likely she's upstairs in her room, where she always is. I wish I knew some way to help you, Miss Russell. Help me. I know what you're going through. You don't need to tell me. I feel it like I always feel a storm blowing up. And every day she stays in her room, shut away from us, pouting. Trouble bears down heavier on your heart. Celia, what am I going to do about it? I don't know. I honestly came back here to Centerfield wanting to help Paul, to help myself, to... To try to find goodness in me, Celia. To let people see that it's there. But instead, I've only caused more trouble. Miss Russell, listen to Celia a minute, will you? Yes, Celia. You told me back in Preston that you had hurt people. You went through... Well, only Celia knows what you did go through after Dean died. You faced things you said you needed to face. And you know I did need to face them, Celia. Yes. But about this thing you did to your sister, Miss Morrison, such a long time ago, you just up and did something any youngster might do and took Mr. Morrison away from her, just for the fun of it, and then gave him back. Isn't that right? Yes, but Edith has never forgiven me. She really hasn't. Well, she's acting real friendly now. I know, but she hasn't really said out and out that she's forgiven me. I tried to get her to say it, but she dodged all around it and, and managed to make me feel more to blame than ever. Now, that's just what I'm driving at. Hmm? I don't see what you mean. Well, it looks to me like your sister and Mr. Paul's wife, Eloise, are both trying to make you feel guilty about something you oughtn't to feel guilty about now. There's plenty of room for all of us here in this house. And yet Miss Eloise never lets up on how crowded it is and how bad it is having us all here. This is part your house. 
You had to have a place to live, and there wasn't any other house. And it isn't as though you didn't try to find another house for us. It's all happened just the way I was afraid it would. Worse, in fact. And it's, it's just that my urge to find myself, to find an ideal, is, is so strong that I can't get away from it. But it takes time to work it out, Celia. Just what is it you're trying to work out, Miss Russell? My own way of living, Celia, my own life. Look, I took time back in Preston to have a really good look at myself, at the reasons I did things, and then at the reasons I gave for doing them. You mean that sometimes we do things for one reason and then kid ourselves along that we did them for another reason? That's it. You see, if I'm in surroundings where everyone bows down to me and spoils me as they did and still would if I were back in Preston, then I might not accomplish what I have to do in order to live with myself. Yes, I see. And my hat's off to you, Miss Russell. But you... You feel that more trouble is coming, don't you, Celia? I don't want to feel it, but I do. I know now what it is you're trying to do here, Miss Russell. But we're going to have a bad storm of trouble from it. Oh, Celia, it mustn't hurt Paul. If the storm breaks over me, that's all right. I'm ready for that. But how can I protect Paul from it? I don't know. It just doesn't seem right sometimes that when we fight hard for good, the way that you're doing now, it always is evil that fights you back. Celia, do you think that Eloise and my sister Edith are... Fighting me with evil? I can't be the judge of that, Miss Russell. I just hate to stand by and see you suffer for it. And to see Mr. Paul being made an innocent victim of it. But sometimes things work that way, and right now, we can only wait and watch. Celia and Joyce talk quietly together in their kitchen. Over at the big Morrison house, little Janie has just invaded the quiet of Edith's afternoon with a whoop and a loud bang of the front door. Mother, where's my baseball glove? It was right here on the couch this morning. Where is it now? Did you put it somewhere? No, Janie, I didn't. What do you want with your baseball glove? This isn't baseball weather. And anyway, I don't want you to play baseball. You're a young lady now. Bowie. I've got a date with Ernest, Mother, right away to show him I can throw an out curve. Oh, my goodness. Where did you put my glove? It was right here. I don't know. Ask Molly. I can't keep up with your things. Where are you meeting, Ernest, dear? Over at his house, Mother. And could I stay for dinner at Joyce's house? Could I? Oh, I don't think so, dear. You've been there too much lately. Oh, please, Mother. It's a lot of fun over there at Joyce's. Well, anyway, there'd be no car to pick you up. Baker's driving me to Marlington tonight to a county meeting. Oh, that's all right, Mother. Daddy can pick me up on his way home. No, dear. Daddy's working late at the office tonight. We mustn't put any extra hardships on Daddy these days. He's not feeling well. Oh, let me go, Mother. Gee whiz. Daddy's not going to be here for dinner either, and you'll be gone to that old meeting. I don't want to eat dinner here by myself when I could be over at Joyce's with Ernest having fun. Daddy can drop by after me. 
the way he did the other night when he thought I was there at Joyce's. Hmm? What did you say? Daddy stopped by Aunt Joyce's for you the other night. When, dear? Oh, when Ernest and I went to that party. Daddy dropped by on his way home and waited there with Joyce. Ernest and me to get there. He was going to take us both to the drugstore for a soda, but Baker and I just dropped Ernest off and I didn't see Daddy. Are you sure your Daddy was there at Aunt Joyce's waiting for you? Just on the chance that you might stop in on your way home? Sure, Ernest told me. It isn't any trouble for Daddy to stop there at all. Oh, please let me go. It's an awful lot of fun there, Mother. No, Janie. You've been there too much. I have an idea. Why not have Ernest come here for dinner? Wouldn't you like that? That's wonderful, Mother. And, and then when Daddy comes home from the office, he and I can take Ernest home. And we'll stop at the drugstore first, before Daddy takes Ernest back to Joyce's. Hmm. Or, uh, or better still, my dear... Why not have Ernest spend the night here? Hey, that's super, Mother. Oh, boy, could we do that? Yes. Now, run on. Make all your arrangements and tell Cook just what you and Ernest would like best of all for dinner. Okay. I'll go call Ernest up first and tell him the good news. So, my husband stopped by on the off chance that Janie might be at her Aunt Joyce's the other night. He didn't tell me... He didn't tell me he'd seen Joyce. A thousand thoughts raced through Edith's mind. Ross saw Joyce. Why didn't Eloise tell her? Why didn't Ross tell her? Was Eloise there and Paul? Ross Morrison dropped by the old Jordan home and had a good heart-to-heart talk with Joyce about his failing health. Joyce bluntly refused to examine him. But Ross was insistent. How will Edith interpret this doctor-patient relationship that Ross seeks so earnestly with Joyce? Be sure to listen to Joyce Jordan the next time. I try to heal, the sick in soul I try to comfort. For to everyone, rich or poor, young or old, a doctor's hand is a helping hand. Draft, America's favorite brand for dishes, presents the real experiences of Joyce Jordan, M.D. greater sacrifice could there be than to serve a prison term for a crime of which you are not guilty? That was Fran Hamilton's sacrifice for love of her frail sister, 
Joyce Jordan will be back in a few moments to tell you more about Beth and Fran Hamilton. But first... What's new on your beak, Mike? Well, Pat, the warm weather's certainly bringing out the soapbox artists. See that woman over there? Sure, and she's got quite a crowd. You expecting a riot? No, they'll break up soon and go stampeding into the store like they did yesterday. How's that, Mike? Well, this lady's after telling them about that new drift for dishes. That sends them running into the store. Then out they come, loaded with boxes as green as the emerald oil. And you, lady, better be after getting yourself a bright green box of this new draft. Did you know the draft, already America's most popular dishwashing brand, is now better than ever, improved still more? Well, just listen to this. Draft has always done dishes faster, easier, and better than any soap on the market. And now this new improved draft makes more suds than any other product known. That's a fact, ounce for ounce in the hardest water. And those new draft suds wash dishes cleaner than any soap in the world. Never leave a dulling, streaky film. Dishes shine even without wiping. And wait till you see those suds tackle greasy pots and pans. Wash them free from grease without any scouring. And, happy thought, your dishwater stays clean-feeling until the last dish is done. This improved drift is a milder drift, too. It's kinder than ever to your hands. It's thrifty, too. Each box lasts longer, washes one quarter more dishes. Try new improved drift yourself. If dishwashing's a headache, you'll love that new drift. And here's Dr. Jordan. I was surprised when I received the urgent call from Mark Andrews to come to see his wife, Beth, who was desperately ill. I found that Beth was beyond help, but I did all I possibly could to aid her. And then Beth went into a coma. While we were standing watch, Mark and I began to discuss the possibility that Fran Hamilton, Beth's sister, had been sentenced unjustly to a term in a reformatory for the theft of a jeweled clip. Beth suddenly spoke up. She began a confession. She talked weakly and between gasps. But her words were perfectly understandable. Fran was telling the truth. I wouldn't admit it except that I know I'm dying. We won't admit yet that you're dying, Beth. Oh, I... I can't let you die, darling. But even so, if you can possibly tell your story, it will help you. Oh, don't pull that on me. I've meant all along to tell the story sometime. <laughs> oh, we, we shouldn't let her talk. As a doctor, I agree with you. But as a woman, I disagree. Fran Hamilton needs her chance. Only a confession from Beth will give her that chance. Is that a confession? I'm not strong enough to say any more. I'm through. That'll be the plasma from the hospital. The plasma will give Beth strength enough to talk. Go to the door, Mark, and take the package from the man, will you? Yes, Dr. Jordan. You're giving me a blood transfusion. Yes, I am. It won't save my life. Perhaps you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. No, you don't. You hate me like poison. I don't hate you, Beth. I'm honestly sorry for you. Don't waste your sympathy on me. Because I don't want any of it. You'd better not talk. It's too hard <laughs> for you. Dr. Jordan. Beth. Beth, how are you, darling? Well, terrific. I'll go to work, Mark. You'll have to help me. Do you think you can stand it? I'll do anything if it'll help Beth. I'll have to give her the plasma drop by drop. I'll have to siphon it off. 
I'll need alcohol and boiling water. Yes, Dr. George. I don't want any nasty old blood. It will make you feel stronger, Beth. <laughs> so I'll be able to confess. Hurry, Mark. <laughs> Bring me some clean towels, too. I'll use this table. hated to tell the anxious young man that his wife only had one chance in a million to pull through. I hated to make it harder for him. I siphoned off the plasma drop by drop while Mark held the vessel. When it was all over, we wrapped Beth in many blankets because she was apt to have a chill. Well, she, she looks more like herself, Dr. Jordan. Well, there's all the difference between night and day. Her eyes are bright and her cheeks are pink. She does look lovely. Dr. Jordan, I feel strong suddenly and ready to go on. Will I be this way for a long while? Well, that depends. On what? On a great many things. But you're strong enough to tell the rest of the story, Beth, and clear up the whole ugly business. Will you do it? I've changed my mind. I don't want to. How can you be so devilish when you're on the brink of... You almost said it. Eternity. Mark, don't stare at me with those great eyes of yours. I was just looking at you with my heart in my eyes. I love you, Beth. You'd have done better to stick by Fran. She'd have made you a better wife. I haven't been a wife to no, you. We'll find happiness someday, Beth. I'm happy right now, just, just being able to take care of you. You're a fool. I don't like fools. Fran's a fool. She shouldn't have let me get away with it. <laughs> Beth, <laughs> lean back against the pillow. Try to hold your breath. I, I, I'm done. I know it. Right this minute, I can feel the new blood you've given me slipping away. Okay, I'll come clean while there's still time. Talk slowly and distinctly. Mark, get a pencil and paper. Why? I want you to take down every word Beth says. Oh, but why? Because it's her confession. And it will have to stand in a court of law. You're taking me very seriously all of a sudden. I've always taken you very seriously, Beth. Go on. Well, it was just the opposite of what Fran said. I went down at the noon hour to meet her. I bought the clip with bills I'd stolen from Fran's little bank where she kept the rent money. I bought it from a girl I didn't recognize. The substitute. Go on, Beth. I walked away from the counter. I had to pass the precious jewelry counter to get to the door. A clerk was showing a clip to a lady. It was exactly like the one I just bought. Only it was real? Yes. Are you writing this down, Mark? Yes, I am. That high color is growing out of Beth's face, Dr. Jordan. Should she talk so much? In the final analysis, it will make very little difference, Mark. Go on, Beth. You've explained about the clip you bought. But how do you explain the fact that the clip you pawned was worth $5,000? Oh, that's easy. I stood by the precious jewelry counter watching, and the customer caught a glimpse of the clip at the other end of the counter. And the clerk moved away, leaving the real clip all by itself on a little velvet pillow. I had a flash of genius. Are you getting this, Mark? Yes, every bit of it. Go on, Beth. I am going on. It was a cinch. While the clerk and the customer had their backs turned, I substituted the imitation clip for the real one and put the real one in my pocket. Oh, good Lord. Quite a story. It was a cinch. It's so simple, it's appalling. Fran never caught on, and she lied like a trooper. Yes, like a trooper. What did you do when the clerk came back, Beth? What did I do? I wasn't there when he came back. I see. I guess they didn't discover that the clip was missing until a week or so later. <laughs> Don't talk anymore, Beth. Rest now. But I want to go on. I, I loved my clip. 
it's $5,000. When did you decide to pawn the clip and buy a fur coat? The day of that first snowstorm. It was seeing the snow that made me want a fur coat. I pawned the clip for the price of the coat. And, and things, things started to happen. I can't understand it. Beth, what? Why, why didn't you tell the truth? They'd have forgiven you if you'd told. Oh, no, they wouldn't have forgiven me. Oh, no. I'd have gone to jail and I couldn't have stood it. It was far better for Fran to go. She was strong. She could stand it. Oh, you're a little devil. Yes, yes, I am. I can't believe my ears. You're so stupid, Mark. I've always hated you because you're so stupid. You've always hated me? You think I'd have married you if I'd have had any choice. All my life, I've dreamed of lovely things happening to me. Jewels, mink coats, a wonderful husband who was a millionaire. Well, I had my jewel for two weeks. I had my fur coat for a day. I married you. I feel as if I'm the one who's dying. All these things you've said, Beth... (laughs) Have they made you hate me? No. No, I love you. They've made Dr. Jordan hate me more than ever. No, Beth, I don't hate you. I've never hated you. Oh, all at once. I'm very sleepy. I want to go to sleep. But first you must sign this paper Mark's written out. I don't, I don't want to. You must. Have you a fountain pen, Mark? Yes. Put the paper in front of her. Beth, take the pen in your hand and sign your name. I, I, I don't want to. I, she, I can't. She's slipping away, Dr. Jordan. Don't make her do anything she doesn't want to. But it's Fran's only chance. <laughs> so what? Beth, if you sign this paper, your story will be printed in all the newspapers. The papers will say how clever you were, and they'll reproduce your picture, and everybody will say how beautiful you were. But if you don't sign your name, nobody will ever know you existed, except just four or five people. Don't you want to be famous, Beth? Don't you want this whole city, this whole country to talk about you? Hmm. Yes. Give me the pen. Good. Where? Where? Where do I? Where do I sign? Right here. Hmm. You know, it's like it's like the first time I ever signed my name. When I was a little kid, it's it's so it's so hard, so hard to write. Take the pen, Mark. Take it from her fingers before she blots the paper. I I looked so pretty in my mink coat. Doctor Jordan. Doctor Jordan. Yes, Mark. She's dead. But we have her signed confession. Fran is free. 
I only hope it isn't too late for her to enjoy her freedom. Well, I was asleep and I, I woke up with such a start. Oh, is my baby done? Mark, you're crying. Has anything happened to my baby? <laughs> This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. A soap opera about a woman balancing her personal and professional lives, Joyce Jordan, M.D. Two episodes from 1946 and 1948. They bring us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We simply can't leave without hearing the great radio comedian Stan Freeberg in the very first of his many recordings for Capitol Records, a perfect parody of the soap operas that uses only two words. Released on February 8, 1951, and rising to number 21 on the pop charts later that month, it's Maestro Freeberg's classic, John and Marcia. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. John! Marcia! John! Marcia! John? Uh, Marcia. John? Marcia? John? Marcia? John? Marcia? Marcia, 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 John, 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 Marcia, John, 
Marshall.